Greetings all, Vanessa Cardi here, welcoming you to November 2022, right on Prime. And I am joined by my co-conspirator, Dr. Heidi James. Greetings, Heidi. Hello there, Vanessa. It's good to see you. I love our check-ins and I'm always excited to talk about what we both know is the best job on the planet, being a family doctor. And yes, I have to admit, we do drink the Kool-Aid before we record. But honestly, despite its ups and downs, I'd say we both love what we do. I totally agree. And thank you so much to everyone for tuning in this month. And to reward you for your loyalty and dedication to CME, we are going to play a game. I like to call it Primary Care Jeopardy. I'm going to describe a chief complaint, and you will have five seconds to give me the answer in question form. I love game shows, Vanessa. You know this about me, so I am ready and waiting. Bring it on. Here we go. A condition that commonly includes heel pain within the first moment or two of weight-bearing in the morning. Oh, I believe the question you are looking for is, what is plantar fasciitis? Ding, 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 ding. (laughs) Yes, you are correct. And your prize is... Nothing. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Except for having an idea of what I want to talk about today. Now, fear not, I am not doing a deep dive into plantar fasciitis. I want to focus on treatment options and the evidence for them. Okay, this is always a great topic because we often see patients with plantar fasciitis, so they're going to appreciate all of us getting up to speed on what's going on here. And because we love to be thorough, I know you're going to talk about the history and clinical presentation here too. So how about a quick overview of what they typically present as? Now, usually these patients are going to come see you saying that their foot hurts. Sometimes they will be more specific and really narrow into the heel area and maybe the medial aspect of the plantar fascia. But more often than not, I find that patients just kind of say, I've got foot pain. Yeah, there are some quick and easy questions that can help us hone in on the diagnosis though. And one is, Is your pain bad when you first put weight on your foot after, say, you've been sleeping or you've been sitting down for a prolonged period? Or also, is it bad at the end of the day after a lot of standing or other activities? Those are helpful questions, but I'm wondering, is there any clues as to the cause of plantar fasciitis yet? Is it something to do with the Achilles? What's going on here? We used to actually believe it was coming from tightness in the Achilles, but now the evidence actually seems to be pointing away from that and saying that the issue is actually with the aponeurosis itself. So now moving on, any idea who might be at risk of plantar fasciitis? Uh, There are some classic examples here, and these are basketball players and ballet dancers. Although I can tell you exactly zero of my patients with plantar fasciitis have been those things. Yes, exactly. But I think the reason that those come up all the time is because they're people who do a lot of jumping. Other risk factors include having a BMI of over 27, having a leg length discrepancy, having pes cavus or pes planus, anyone who does what they describe as excessive running. I think that must be left open to interpretation because excessive running for me is probably different than for a marathoner. And anything that forces a patient to be standing or walking for prolonged periods of time. You might see this in people who are working in a kitchen or people who are like delivering the mail, doing a lot of walking. It seems walking barefoot or in sock feet, particularly on a very hard surface like concrete, can also provoke attacks of plantar fasciitis as well. So those are other things to question about in the history. So if our history leads us to suspect plantar fasciitis, what do we do next? Well, a physical exam is certainly helpful, and it's very straightforward, really. Specifically, you want to dorsiflex the forefoot and toes and palpate along the fascia from the heel towards the toe. The fascia should feel taut on palpation, and if they have plantar fasciitis, they'll probably jump or squirm with pain when you are touching on the heel and midfoot. 
Is there a role for imaging in these folks, Vanessa? Technically, this really is a clinical diagnosis, but if you aren't sure, and if you're wanting to rule out conditions from your differential, then you might ask for an x-ray or possibly an MRI. However, if it's straightforward and seems like classic plantar fasciitis without any concerning features, then you really can just proceed to treatment. Now, if after three months of treatment there's no change, you might want to consider ultrasound, as this can help to confirm the diagnosis and ensure that you're not missing anything. So far, I like how straightforward this is. So let's round it out with a quick overview of the incredibly robust evidence we have for all of the many easy therapies that fix plantar fasciitis. Ah, yes. If only that were true. Because unfortunately, Heidi, this is where this all goes a bit pear-shaped. There are lots of different treatment options to suggest to your patients, but unfortunately, none of them are backed up by great evidence. But let's go back to our tried and true friend, rice, right? Rest, ice, compression, elevation. So rest and ice definitely going to help. We also want to have the patient rest from activities that provoke the symptoms like excessive running or jumping, but we don't actually want them to stop all exercise. You can encourage them to try non-weight-bearing activities like swimming or rowing or cycling. These are all good alternatives to keep the patient's cardio routine going and to prevent wasting of those leg muscles. For ice, one maneuver that really seems to help and that you might see reference in the literature is called ice massage. And to do this, you actually take a frozen tin can and you roll it under your foot for 5 to 10 minutes at the end of each day. And it provides a lot of relief and can really provide nice focal icing of that area. Ooh, I want to see a randomized controlled trial of the frozen tin can you recommend versus the frozen water bottle that I recommend. Oh, it's coming soon, coming soon. (laughs) So the treatments sound, well, they sound chilly, they sound cold and vaguely unpleasant, but not too hard to do. But in addition to this, is there any specific exercises we can direct our patients to do? Yeah, I'm going to go through a few of them now, and we will have links to the exercises as well in the show notes so you can see these and print them up for your patients. But there, of course, has been debate about these exercises. And while the evidence isn't fantastic for any particular exercise, it does seem that the plantar stretches and heel drops are generally beneficial. For the plantar stretch, ask your patient to keep a loose sheet by their bedside. And once they wake up in the morning and before they place their feet on the ground for the first time, They should take the sheet and sling it over their MTP heads while holding each end of the sheet in their hand. Then they should slowly stretch back their toes by pulling on the sheet, pulling their toes up towards them, so that the toes and forefoot stay dorsiflexed. They should hold that stretch for about 30 seconds and repeat it three times each session. And a session should happen every morning, as I mentioned, before they put their weight on their foot for the first time, and at any other point if a patient's been sitting for a long time. Now for the heel drops, You need to get them to balance on their toes on a low-level step and drop their heels below the level of the step and then raise back up to flat foot level. And you repeat this 10 times per session with about three sessions per day to start with. Slowly, you're going to try and get them to work up to doing 100 lifts up and down per session as the pain lessens and as they get stronger. Vanessa, they would have totally jacked calves if they did that too. They certainly would. And so that will also distract them from the fact that their feet are hurting because now they will be able to show off their beautifully jacked calves. (laughs) Yeah, my feet ache all day, but check these out. And now another stretch that seems to help is the towel or face cloth grab. So with the patient barefoot, you have them drop a face cloth or a towel on the ground and have them place their affected foot on top of the towel or face cloth. Ask them to try and grip the towel with their toes and then release. Doing this at least 10 times a session doing and doing three times a day seems to have at least some anecdotal evidence of efficacy. 
Okay. So let's say my patient really doesn't want to do exercises. They don't want to have a designated sheet or towel they carry around to help dorsiflex their toes, their feet, and they're not excited about having well-developed calves because they want a quicker fix. Are there any other options? Unfortunately, not really. Over-the-counter orthotics can help a bit. Studies show that they are just as effective or actually just as ineffective as custom-made orthotics, so that's good to know. You can save some money. And some patients will certainly swear by night splints or even intermittent casting. But again, there isn't much evidence for this. Taping techniques and steroid injections are also options. But again, they're really not great. The evidence really isn't there. But finally, there is also surgery. Is surgery something we should be recommending for anyone who fails the conservative therapy after a few months? Or do we try persisting with these less invasive options for longer before we recommend surgery? Given that studies seem to show that in 80% of patients, their symptoms will have resolved within a year, and given that surgery is not without risk, this is certainly low, low, low down on my list of treatment priorities for most patients. I would prefer to focus on some judicious NSAID use along with ice massage, stretches, and lifestyle changes with weight loss and a change-up in the form of cardio exercise the patient likes to do being key. In fact, the American College of Foot and Ankle Surgeons actually suggests that treatments for plantar fasciitis be tailored to the patient and their lifestyle rather than following a set treatment ladder, as most treatment options are really not supported by the evidence. Okay, so let's say our patients do what we suggest, we see them back in three months, and they are feeling great, no symptoms. Can I just tell them to go back to their previous routines before they started getting plantar fasciitis? Actually, it's better for them to gradually return to their activities only once they have been asymptomatic for about four to six weeks. So no jumping straight back into jumping exercises or similar activities. That might be frustrating for the patient to take it so slowly, but really, in the end, they will thank you. Alrighty, I think I've got it. So let me just run over the highlights with you to be sure I do. So plantar fasciitis is a very common form of foot pain in adults. It tends to present with heel pain that is really worst first thing in the morning with the first few steps or after they've been sitting for a while. And to examine these patients, we need to dorsiflex their forefoot and toes and palpate along that fascia there, along that aponeurosis. We don't need to do any imaging, but if the diagnosis isn't clear after about three months of therapy, we should probably consider getting an ultrasound or an MRI. And for treatment, we want to start with that rest ice compression elevation. We need lifestyle modifications and plantar fascia stretches first thing in the morning. Throw in some of those heel drops for the side benefit of jacked calves. Do some toe curls by picking up that face cloth off the floor and maybe some NSAIDs. Some people do well with orthotics or inserts. And then there's splints and casts. And if things aren't getting better, if they're going on for more than a year, consider consulting a foot surgeon. If you have a foot surgeon. If you don't have a foot surgeon, then maybe another surgeon who happens to operate on feet. That's right. Look at that. We've successfully transferred the knowledge from one to the other. Nicely done. Now that we have all those patients with plantar fasciitis attended to, what else are we looking at this month? We have a great lineup this month, Vanessa. Of course, Steve and Ken are here with their top 10 papers. Hobie's back and Chris Drum is here as well. Then we have Penny talking about adolescent contraception. We have an urgent care piece, our rural med piece. And probably the piece I'm most excited about is an interview I did with Cody Unser. That's about how we help people with disabilities access the health care that they need. It was an eye-opener for me. Yeah, definitely. You need to listen to this probably more than once. Great stuff. 
So I guess we're done here and we'll catch everyone on the other side for the summary. Coming to you from semi-scenic Loma Linda, California, it's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hi, Heidi. How are you doing? Hobie, I am doing fantastic. I'm doing fantastic because you have great stories, Hobart Lee. Please tell me that you have one this month. Yeah, I do. What I want to talk about today is the physician dress code. So gather around, listeners. <laughs> it's time for story time with Hobie Lee. Okay, so I'm in residency, and we had a rotation where we had to do Friday morning clinic after a week of nights. So this is particularly challenging. You work nights all week, and then you have a Friday morning clinic. And so normally we require professional dress, right, in clinic. But since we were coming off a night shift, we were allowed to wear scrubs. So I was doing one of these Friday AM clinics in my scrubs, and one of the attendings commented and said, hey, you look really disheveled in those scrubs, and maybe that's not the best look in front of patients. So I told her, I'm, I'm coming off nights. I'm allowed to wear scrubs in clinic. <laughs> and she said, well, yes, you are allowed, but I could always bring a change of clothes and, and change before clinic. So at this point, I'm, I'm livid. I'm tired from a week of nights. I'm trying to squeeze the last ounce of energy over my over-caffeinated and sleep-deprived body. And my attending is calling me out because I look crazy and tired. And I want to tell her it's because I am crazy and tired. I'm, I'm, like, I'm doing this clinic after working nights. Am I crazy? Yeah, you're crazy. But I grit my teeth and I say, thank you for the feedback. I really appreciate it. And I finish my clinic. So a few months later, I'm on the post-nights Friday AM shift again. And I remember my attending's comments. It's months later, but I'm still mad about it. <laughs> and so I go in my closet and I pull out my three-piece suit. And uh, if I had a top hat and a cane and monocle, I would have brought those two. And you must be the Monopoly guy. Hey, thanks for the free parking. And so after my night shift, I change into my Sunday suit and I go to clinic wearing my Sunday best. And the same wow. attending... She sees me and she comes, wow. She goes, what's the occasion? You're totally overdressed for clinic. And I stare at her and I say, I'm post nights. You told me to change before clinic. So I changed. I'm wearing my best suit. <laughs> and so for the rest of the residency, I always wore this suit for my post nights Friday morning clinic. You have ushered in the new era of revenge dressing. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that is the best passive-aggressive revenge dressing story I have ever heard and probably ever will hear, I think, Kobe. That's amazing. But uh, what I'm hearing, Hobart, is there's a missed opportunity so far, and that opportunity is the three-piece scrub suit. <laughs> when I come visit you in Loma Linda, California, all of your residents will be running around post-call in their three-piece scrub suits. <laughs> That's our million-dollar idea here. So the reason I am telling this story was I've been reflecting on the COVID-19 pandemic, and um, this is a small offshoot of the pandemic, is the physician dress code. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because what we are wearing at work has really changed during the pandemic. I did not wear scrubs until the pandemic. And honestly, I wore scrubs for two and a half, three years straight. Like last month was the first time I started wearing regular work clothes. And truth be told, I just did that because I needed to make sure they still fit. That's awesome. Yeah. So as background, I'll say we also require professional dress in our department and residency. And before the pandemic, in fact, we required white coats to be worn in the hospital and in the clinic. And then the pandemic started. And before we knew a lot about how COVID-19 spread, there was a lot of uncertainty. And I remember 
hearing stories of how physicians would literally like strip out of their clothing in the car or in the garage before they would come home, right? And they would just like jump in the shower right away to try to decontaminate themselves before they entered into their home. And then I had residents approach me saying they were concerned about the cost of having to launder or dry clean their professional clothes like every day because they were in the hospitals. And again, we weren't quite sure how widespread COVID was and how it was ultimately sort of transmitting from person to person. And so they asked if they could wear scrubs in the hospital and in the clinic. And so again, we've only allowed traditionally residents to wear scrubs when they're on call or they work on the weekend. But this seemed like a reasonable accommodation because we just didn't know that much about COVID-19. So we ditched the white coat requirement. We allowed them to wear scrubs all the time, no matter where they were, hospital, inpatient, outpatient, daytime, nighttime, call, weekend, uh, whenever they wanted. Yeah. And I would say it's a similar dress code here. And this change has been with our learners and with our staff as well. But I honestly cannot recall the last time I had a learner who did not wear scrubs to clinic and for rounds. I can't remember it. Well, before we talk about the direction we're heading in, why don't we take a step back and talk about professional dress in general? Like, does it matter what we wear to work? Is it important? That's a good point. So let's kind of do the background here. You know, I was taught that professional dress is important because it's a sign of respect to the other person. So I think about what people would wear if they were going on a first date or if you were going to meet the president or prime minister Mm -hmm. or why people to dress up, go to church, etc. You know, you dress up not necessarily for yourself, but to show respect for the other person or entity. I always tell my new interns every year, you know, I can make the exact same diagnosis and prescribe the exact same medication wearing a t-shirt and jeans, but my patients won't feel the same. I dress up as a sign of respect to them. Making a good first impression to patients is important. And I think wearing professional clothes helps physicians make that positive first impression. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Because... I may see things a little bit differently. I mean, maybe it speaks to when I went through training and started practice, but it was very much in the era when we were very conscious of not being paternalistic or maternalistic in medicine, like trying to make patients feel as comfortable and as at ease as possible. So there was less of an emphasis on, hey, you need to dress professionally. It was more so you need to dress in a way that makes patients feel comfortable. So, and I'll just give you just a little bit of a story about the area I live, just to put things in context. Yeah. I had a third-year medical student working with me one weekend. We were on call, and we were doing rounds. I had tried to get a little bit of gardening in before I went to the hospital, so I was wearing my red rubber boots, jeans, and some kind of a shirt. My med student was wearing a dress, a very nice dress, and looked very fancy. Yes. And I went, I got her to go see one of the patients. She came back. And then later I went to see the patient and the patient said, and I quote, who does she think she is dressing up like that here? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I just, I don't trust her. So I think you need to be aware of where you are in your practice environment when you're deciding what you wear to work. There certainly does seem to be some generational differences, some gender differences, and I'm sure local environmental differences where, you know, you want to be representative, right, of the patients you take care of and the environment that you work in. So that's awesome. Who does she think she is? Who does she think she is? Meanwhile, I'm literally wearing rubber boots in the hospital. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) And I get a pass. So I guess that might be the difference between academic and community medicine as well. When I was a medical student, you know, a student asked a question like, well, how do I know if what I'm wearing is professional enough? And one of the deans told us, if your grandma would not approve, then it's not professional enough, right? And uh, I just, I love that quote because I think it says it all. Like, 
in medicine, we value tradition and we would rather be two generations behind in style and dress than to wear something potentially that patients would say, oh, that's not appropriate as a professional physician. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly we don't want to wear clothes that offend. And uh, grandmas have a good standard of what is not offensive, I think. (laughs) That's right. So do we know what our patients actually feel about what we wear, about whether we're wearing professional clothes or if we're more casual? There has been some studies about this. BMJ did one where patients really do want their doctors to dress up. A study of 4,000 patients, and they were shown pictures of doctors wearing different types of clothing, from scrubs to suits and with and without a white coat. And the highest rated combination was formal attire, like a shirt and tie for a guy, with a white coat. And older patients, no surprise, had a higher preference for the more formal attire. Hmm. Hmm. And when I looked into this study, I was happy, I guess somewhat surprised to see there was a variation in the results, including that patients did prefer to see the surgeons in scrubs. Recognizing that context obviously is important. Yeah, I think, I think that's an interesting point, because I think when we think about certain professions, we often associate them with like a uniform of some sort. For example, when I ask you to think about an airline pilot, what mental image do you see? Oh my gosh, I totally see the dark blue double-breasted coat with stripes on the side and the airline cap and looking just so put together that there's not a single doubt in my mind that this person can't keep me alive when I'm on an airplane. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think of too, right? (laughs) Just as a thought experiment, like how would you feel if you saw someone in t-shirt and jeans like roll up to the gate and announce like, I'm here, I'm the pilot. Oh my gosh, like you post-call you and post-call me. Yikes. Yeah, that's right. Oh, that would be scary. (laughs) I I would think like, are they actually the pilots? Like, why aren't they wearing the uniform? Did they wake up late? Have they been drinking? Like, can they actually fly this plane? Can they get me to my destination and get me there alive? That's right. We're all going to die. So I think what you're getting at here, Hobie, is that when we think about doctors, there is the prototypical image. Yeah, and I would say that's the white coat with the stethoscope around the neck, right? And that white coat is a little bit like a judge's robe. It is like a strong symbol of the kind of the establishment that stands behind it. Part of my understanding of why we've gotten away from white coats and even, you know, the regular long ties is pathogens because we go from patient to patient and their microbes jump up on our hands and on our lab coats and on our ties and long sleeve shirts, and we share them with other patients. And they've actually banned white coats and long sleeves in the UK, right? Yeah, I've heard that too. And I think there is like in vitro data that all those things do carry bacteria. But I have yet to see anything concrete that really shows that in a patient care setting, that bacteria transfer that way, right? And so I'm I'm sure if we could prove that, we'd all kind of be ditching the white coat. But, you know, I haven't heard that yet. Okay, okay. Another argument I've heard is that white coats make patients nervous, so doctors don't want to wear them because to make patients feel comfortable. This is my point of view right here, just encapsulated. You know, we want people to be comfortable. We don't want to add to their anxiety. We don't want white coat syndrome. I've heard that too. And a JAMA study discussed how physicians wearing white coats were perceived as being more professional, more experienced, and more friendly. And so I don't know if we can just automatically assume that white coats make Uh, patients feel uncomfortable. And particularly for our female colleagues, that female physicians not wearing their white coats were often more likely to be mistaken as a medical tech or a nurse instead of the physician. I can assure you, Hobie, through lived experience and the experience of all of my female colleagues, that it does not matter what you wear as a female physician. You will 
always be mistaken for somebody you are not. And that's a whole other can of worms that we can dive into sometime, but today is not that day. Okay, so I want to talk about two more topics as we're wrapping up. You don't mind if I ask you a personal question, do you? What'd you pay for those shoes? The first one is uh, shoes. <laughs> what do you think about shoe choices? Does it matter what kind of shoes a doctor wears? Um, no. Other than for self-preservation, you should not wear shoes that you're likely to get needle sticks through. That's my only thoughts on shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, interesting, I found a survey of 250 doctors. They found that 40% of doctors kind of wear casual shoes or loafers, followed by 29% who wear dress shoes or heels, 20% wear sneakers, and then 11% wear Crocs or clogs. And I will tell you, all I wore clogs all through residency. Although, I'll be honest, I'm not <laughs> sure why, because I never found them to be particularly comfortable. But I saw that every doctor and every nurse in the hospital was wearing them. I will acknowledge they're very easy to slip on and off, and they're very easy to clean when you get stuff on them. But, you know, I have ditched those clogs, and now I either wear kind of dress shoes or loafers into work. Well, I will admit to buying Crocs during the pandemic, but solely for outpatient COVID clinics, because, again, I needed something that I could throw in the washer when I got home. And That's Crocs, right. as far as I know, are the only ones that I can do that for. The survey you're talking about also asked doctors what factors into a good work shoe, and not surprisingly, comfort was most important, followed by support and cushioning. Appearance and cost were lower down on the list because, thankfully, most of us can afford to get the shoes we want to. And I think it shows that we are a profession that's constantly on our feet. We're walking, sometimes we're running, and that impacts uh, what we want to put on our feet. So what's the second thing you want to talk about? I want to talk about scrubs. We kind of started this discussion talking about the pandemic and how we all started wearing scrubs. And I'm not sure when this phenomenon started, but the advent of like really expensive scrubs has invaded our residency in hospitals. Yeah. When I was a medical student and a resident, there were no such things as fancy scrubs. You got them from the OR changing room or the scrub machine, and they were like all one color, like this bluish color, right? And yeah. they were two sizes, a small medium for, for females and a large, X-large for men, right? <laughs> And then the other thing I remember about these scrubs was that they were washed so many times that the fabric was like threadbare, right? <laughs> I, I felt like That's the true. emperor wearing new clothes because I yeah. put them on and I felt like I'm not really wearing anything at all. I feel like I'm like there's nothing separating me from, from the outside world. <laughs> it's true. You know, I'd be on call and, and uh, I'd put these scrubs on and I think I am one coffee spill away from everyone seeing my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle underwear. Dude, on my shell and hope to die. I won't even whisper it to anyone. But scrubs have changed. Yeah, they're fancy. They're like, they have like nice thick material. Uh, they come in all sorts of colors. They have like more than two sizes, right? And then they have pockets like everywhere. They cost a pretty penny. And these, these scrubs are not cheap. It's cheaper to buy dress clothes than it is to buy some of these scrubs because of how, <laughs> how, how much it costs. It's true, isn't it? Oh, man, I wish I could just go to the OR locker room and grab some scrubs there, and that would be fine, because that would be much cheaper. That's right. <laughs> okay, so we were chatting the other day, and you kind of told me after wearing scrubs for a long time in the pandemic, you went back to wearing professional clothes. How are you feeling about that decision? I'm feeling okay about it, Hobart, although sometimes I do miss the scrubs because they're so much easier to take care of. I mean, I will say, like, through the pandemic, as it started, I ditched the tie because I was, I was worried about sort of transmitting COVID that way. But I continued to just kind of wear a dress shirt and slacks to work, mostly out of uh, pure 
practicality because I did not own any fancy scrubs. All I owned were these threadbare scrubs that I had saved from residency. <laughs> that I was like, I cannot wear these at work. These are like just might as well be wearing pajamas, right? And so I just kind of did that. And then after some point, I was kind of like, hmm, so I need to put the tie back on. And uh, a few months ago, I started. I started to say, you know, I said, this is kind of important to me because I think it's a reflection of what I think about my patients. And I know that we've kind of discussed not everyone would feel that way. But I kind of said, this is, I think this is the right thing to do. Now, interestingly enough, I haven't really talked to my residents about this. And I've kind of mm. just let them continue to wear scrubs. And I almost feel like the cat's out of the bag. And it's going to be really hard for me to convince them to not wear the scrubs and go back to professional dress, particularly when we just talked about like some of these scrubs are really nice. I mean, and you, yeah. yes, they are scrubs, but they look like nice clothing, right? And they don't, they don't look like the, the scrubs that we've talked about. And so I think they can make the argument, these, these clothes are nicer than some of the professional clothes I own. Why can't I wear this to work? Yeah, so so there's lots of stuff to think about here. Um, and, you know, has the ship sailed on professional dress? Are we stuck in scrubs forever? Who knows? We'll see what the future holds. Yeah, and I, I would say the one reflection I have after sort of thinking about this and talking with you about it is, again, I'm traditionally not a white coat wearer. I don't really wear it. I, it hangs up, but I don't ever put it on. But I wonder, especially that study that kind of showed that you know, patients think their doctors are more professional, more competent, more friendly when they wear their white coat. Again, is this something not, not necessarily do, do it for me, but if I'm going to wear a tie for patients, mm. why can't I wear a white coat for them as well, right? And I, and I get some people may come to the opposite conclusion and say, I don't want to create that barrier. And I think that's very good too. I just think being thoughtful about kind of the choices that we make, especially when it comes to uh, professional dress, I think is a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, it certainly is. That's why I'll continue to wear my rubber boots on occasion <laughs> in my community hospital. <laughs> That's right. Oh, dear. Listen, Hobie, it's been a treat. It's a pleasure talking to you. I got a 50-year-old man in cardiac arrest, and our building just lost power. All right, give me jumper cables, rubber gloves, 3,000 grams of Soul Medrol. Stack. What are you, MacGyver? No, I'm the generalist. generalist. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi, and we are back on The Generalist. And welcoming back once again is Dr. Penny Wilson, all the way from Australia. And we're going to talk today about an uncommon type of obstetric case that can be certainly weird and scary if you haven't seen one before, but fortunately has a pretty straightforward management approach. So Penny, great to have you back. And um, what's your story? Vanessa, here's the scenario. So some time ago, I'm the on-call maternity doctor in a medium-sized rural hospital, and I get a call from the labour and delivery nurse. There's a multigravita patient in the birth suite in good-going spontaneous labour. So far, so good. She's having a little girl, and a recent scan showed a healthy, smallish baby with measurements all around the 25th centile. She has two previous normal vaginal deliveries and has progressed well to full dilatation, but the head is still really high. So they've asked me to come and check the position and see if she's ready to start pushing. So I do a vaginal exam and it just doesn't feel quite right. I can't really feel the sutures. I can't really feel a fontanelle. I can feel something a bit soft and bulging and something that's a bit firm and I'm a bit thrown. Am I feeling a fetal labia? Am I feeling a bum? Is there a hand there? Is there a nose? So first thing I do is grab the ultrasound and see that it's definitely a cephalic position. And yep, the bum and legs are up near the fundus, so it's definitely not a breach. So I do another vaginal exam and I'm like, okay, yeah, that definitely feels like a nose. 
And then I realized that what I thought maybe were labia were in fact eyelids. And that's when I realized, okay, I have a face presentation. Let's do a recap of fetal presentation in general. So presentation refers to the part of the fetus that enters the maternal pelvis first, otherwise called the presenting part. So it is either a breech, so that's a bum, a leg or a foot, or it's cephalic, so head first. And for the cephalic ones, the most common is a vertex presentation, so the back of the head with the fetal chin tucked down into their chest, which is a very streamlined and efficient position to be born in. And the complete opposite is the face presentation, where the neck is hyperextended and the fetus is coming down the birth canal face first. And there's something in between, which is a brow presentation, where the head is partially extended. So I'm guessing from this that a face presentation isn't particularly common, is that right? Yeah, no, it's not common at all, which is why the first time I had one, I was very confused. It's thought to occur in around 1 in 500 to 600 deliveries, and that's pretty consistent with my experience. The brow presentation, so the in-between one, is less common again, occurring in somewhere around 1 in 1,500 deliveries, although the quoted incidence varies depending on different data sources. And so how are you going to differentiate these different cephalic presentations from one another on vaginal exam? So the vertex is your usual presentation, and for those ones, you're typically going to feel the posterior fontanelle as the most prominent landmark, and that's the small triangle soft spot. And along with that, you're going to feel the midline sagittal suture and the lambdoid sutures. So you sort of feel a Y shape with the posterior fontanelle in the middle. For a brow presentation, the anterior fontanelle is going to be palpable, which is a larger diamond-shaped soft spot with the sagittal and coronal sutures coming off it in a cross shape. And you can also typically feel the orbital ridges or the brow bones. And for the face, you're going to feel facial features like the orbits, the nose, the mouth, and the chin. Okay, and so within a face presentation itself, are there different types of face presentations? The most important classification is the position of the fetal head as this determines the management delivery, so which way it's pointing. So normally for a vertex presentation, we describe the position of the fetal head in relation to the occiput, so the back of the head. For example, OA is occiput anterior, OP is occiput posterior, etc. For a face presentation, it's the chin that is the most crucial in determining the position. So we describe the position as mentum anterior, so chin towards the mother's pubis, or mentum posterior, chin towards the mother's sacrum. And what does all of this mean for delivery in terms of management plans or decisions that you have to take? Mm. So looking at those couple of different uh, male presentations, we have brow presentation, so the in-between one. These sometimes do resolve during labor because then they're usually not kind of fixed in the brow presentation early on. If the head becomes more flexed with contractions, then sometimes they can then engage in a normal vertex position. However, if they're persistent brow presentations, these ones are pretty much a straight to cesarean section situation. And this is because the diameter that is presenting is really the biggest part of the head. So too big to pass through the pelvis. And it's not going to pass unless you have a very tiny baby and a very roomy pelvis. For face presentations, it depends on the position. So the mentum anterior position, so chin towards the front, can actually deliver vaginally because the diameter of the 
presenting part is actually pretty much the same in a hyperextended phase presentation as it is in a nicely flexed vertex presentation. And in fact, 73% of these deliver spontaneously and vaginally. Now, mentum posterior position, so chin towards the back, are not going to deliver vaginally because the baby's chin gets impacted on the sacrum and there's nowhere to go in terms of further extending the fetal head to get around that corner. It's already extended as far as it can go. So MP face presentations are also going to go to cesarean section. All right, this is reassuring that at least for the mentum anterior ones, 73% are going to deliver spontaneously. But it does sound like cesarean is something we have to worry about. So what do you do if you don't have access to cesarean? Yeah, this is a really tricky one. And and hopefully that doesn't apply to many of our listeners. But I have seen some internal maneuvers of last resort described, which involve manually flexing or rotating the fetal head to facilitate vaginal delivery. But these are obviously extremely risky with a significant risk of uterine rupture, so should only be used in scenarios where there is absolutely no other option. All right, now I'm worked up about that. That's good because I don't have cesarean capacity here. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Okay, so let's talk about the mentum anterior babies who can deliver vaginally. How do we safely facilitate that delivery? So we're going to want to be doing continuous external fetal heart rate monitoring. This is certainly recommended as it's common to get heart rate abnormalities. Internal fetal monitoring with a scalp clip should be avoided because you don't want to accidentally attach it to the eye or the nose, for example. Now, prolonged or arrested labor can certainly occur, and it's acceptable to use oxytocin infusion in those situations if contractions are adequate and need a bit of a nudge. Now, for these deliveries, we want all the help that we can get because they can get a bit complex. So we're going to call in all of our assistants, the specialist obstetrician, if we have one, the neonatologist or pediatric clinician, if we have one, the anesthesiologist for a spinal or epidural, if we can, and the operating room team in case of potential cesarean delivery. And we are going to have a very low threshold for episiotomy in these patients as well, because we want all the room that we can get. Now, in cases of slow progress or fetal heart rate abnormalities, instrumental delivery is possible if the baby is low enough. So you can't use a vacuum on a baby's face. It's not going to seal and it's a bad look. But uh, using a forceps is possible. And the forceps are applied in the usual way. But one tip that I've heard is that you want the bed to be nice and low so that you have a lot of room to really rotate the head up and around. And these deliveries involve a lot more flexion of the head than is typical for a forceps delivery. Okay, this is all sounding very alarming. (laughs) So what are the potential complications of a uh, face presentation? So as I mentioned, prolonged labor or arrest of descent is more common with a face than a vertex presentation and fetal distress is also more common. Maternal third and fourth degree tears are also more likely, particularly if you do end up using a forceps for delivery. So again, use your episiotomy scissors liberally. Now these babies can also develop swelling or bruising on the face, which usually goes down quickly and doesn't cause any issues. But occasionally this type of facial swelling can compromise the airway, requiring intubation of the newborn. Is there any way you can actually predict a face or brow presentation in advance, you know, so we can be prepared? It'd be nice to have some semblance of control here. Are there any specific risk factors that we're looking at? 
There are a few risk factors. So things like prematurity, fetal macrosomia, cephalopelvic disproportion, so a big baby and a small pelvis, or pelvic structural abnormalities, and also abnormalities of the fetal head. So things like anencephaly or abnormalities of the fetal neck, like thyroid tumors or neck muscle spasms. And it's also more common in multiparous women and those with polyhydramnios. But honestly, because it's so uncommon and because the risk factors are so vague, it's often not diagnosed until labor. Awesome. Okay, so um, (laughs) how did your case turn out? So because my patient was multiparous with a smallish baby and an MA position, I knew she had a pretty good chance of a normal vaginal delivery. So I called the OR team, the pediatrician, the obstetrician, and the anaesthetist, and they were all on standby in case of difficult delivery. She ended up needing a bit of oxytocin when her contractions spaced out, but she pushed really, really well. She did develop fetal distress with a rising baseline and deep variable decelerations. So the obstetrician called in and she did a beautiful one-pull forceps delivery with their small episiotomy. The baby cried straight away. She had APGARs of nine at one and five minutes and didn't need any resuscitation. She had a bit of swelling over her forehead and eyelids, but was otherwise perfect. The parents were besotted, the team was elated, and there were high fives and handshakes all around. Nice. All right, so this one turned out well. I'm very relieved to hear that. Well, that was a great review of a really interesting case and some really key points of something that we don't hear that often about, which I'm glad to say because it doesn't happen that often, thankfully. But how about you uh, give us a little summary with some take-home points? Recap. Okay, so face presentations are uncommon and are weird and scary the first time you encounter one. Mentum posterior and persistent brow presentations need to go to the OR for a cesarean section delivery. But if the chin is anterior, they usually deliver just fine vaginally. However, they do need close monitoring and a team around in case of complications. Oxytocin infusion and forceps can be used to help facilitate safe delivery and don't be shy about cutting an episiotomy. And also the take home message from this case is that obstetrics is cool. It's such a unique experience to see a baby come into the world face first and a great privilege to be part of it, particularly when it all goes so well. You sound so cool and calm and collected, Penny. I'm glad that it went well. I'm glad that you were there to deal with this particular situation. And thank you so much for coming to share your story with us. This was great and will hopefully give people some sense of control if they put their hands in there and stick their fingers up a baby's nose. All right. Thank you so much, Penny. Thanks, Vanessa. Hepatitis A with Chris Drum. Heidi, on a particular Friday night, I was on call for the upcoming weekend, and the news ran a story about another infectious disease outbreak. Ooh, another one. What was it? Was it uh, Legionella? Was it Salmonella from turtles? Was it the Black Plague? I need to know. A, B, C. It's easy as one, two, three. As simple as do, re, mi. A, B, C. Hepatitis A and me. <laughs> hepatitis A. Reporting from local Philadelphia, there has been an outbreak of hepatitis A from a local restaurant. One patient has died. Call your doctor immediately. If you have eaten anywhere near this area or eaten at this restaurant, you could die from hepatitis A. <laughs> Call your doctor. Well, that sounds quite dramatic. They had announced that someone had died. 
You know what the worst part was? Guess what the second worst part of this story was. Of course, the worst part is someone died, but guess what the worst part of the story was? I don't know. What is it? I eat lunch there a lot. Oh, no. Oh, Uh, no. Not frequently, but I can picture the booth I sat in the last time we went for lunch. And I ordered something not that healthy, but they always bring out a little side salad before, and I ate that side salad. Oh, man, man. Okay. Well, aside from your own concern, my prediction is that your patients weren't very concerned because they knew a lot about Hepe and didn't freak out at all, right? Not at all. Freaking out. Everyone was freaking out. Everyone was freaking out. So before I started my call, I decided that I had to call the health department and get more information on this outbreak. Yeah, the one thing that springs to mind with Hep A is fecal oral root. So restaurants would be a good place to catch it. That's the first thing that jumps to my mind. Restaurants with bathrooms. Yes. I called the health department. They didn't want to give me any information. And I kept asking the questions. At least they gave me the timeline of when the exposures happened. And I asked them if they could tell me what other specific type of food caused the outbreak. But they would not give me that information. I said, was it pizza? Because it doesn't happen from pizza. And they're like, well, we'll tell you that it wasn't from the pizza. Hmm. Okay. So they couldn't tell you what caused the outbreak. Other than it didn't come from pizza. By the time I got off the phone with the health department, I had nine messages all about the possible hepatitis A exposure. Was I going to test all these patients? Should they all get immunoglobulin? Or do we just vaccinate? That's a lot of things to try to figure out on a Friday early evening. So uh, what was your plan? So I decided I needed to do a deep dive into hepatitis A. And we are about to benefit from that. Thank you. Oh yeah, hepatitis A. Single-stranded RNA virus from the Picornaviridae family, the most common infectious etiology of acute hepatitis worldwide, and it is different from BNC in that it does not cause chronic liver disease. And it is more common in high-risk groups, including IV drug users, men who have sex with men, and traveling to endemic areas. And humans are the only natural host. And, you know, I haven't seen that much of it. We've only had one outbreak in my career, but chatting with my older colleagues, They remember a time when it used to run rampant around here. Yeah, the World Health Organization estimates there's about 1.5 million outbreaks per year. Overall cases have reduced to 1.2 per 100,000 since there have been changes in sanitation and vaccination. Food handlers are an infrequent reason for outbreaks, but it seems like it's been happening more and more over the past few years. And there are equal rates between men and women. And this is definitely more dangerous for adults that are older. And More recently, there have been food-related outbreaks that have been popping up over the past five or six years. An uneventful breakfast run ends up being life-changing for one family. The FDA is investigating a hepatitis A outbreak linked to fresh organic strawberries. So tell me a little bit more about the ins and outs of this virus. Well, this virus replicates in the liver cells the hepatocytes, and it causes different immune changes. Cell destruction, there's inflammation. And this replicating cell causes this inflammatory cascade that causes the acute damage to the liver. Later on, it's excreted into the bile and into the stool. And that is where the whole fecal oral route comes into play. The virus can actually be found in the blood or stool for 10 to 12 days after the infection. The virus can already be spreading for weeks before symptoms start. And this is how outbreaks happen. Now, were any of your patients that you spoke with symptomatic? Had they been to this restaurant? Had they been exposed? Well, I realized every one of my patients goes to this restaurant. I did ask (laughs) if they had symptoms. And they were not symptomatic. 
But hepatitis A has an incubation time. It's got a long incubation time. So there was an average of 30 days of an incubation time. It can be anywhere from 15 to 50 days. And guess how long ago this outbreak had happened? 30 days. What are the chances? Ah, shoot. So what sort of clinical symptoms were you looking for? Well, you know what I love with all these infections now is initially flu-like symptoms. Fatigue, nausea, vomiting, decreased appetite, fever, body aches. And then also dark urine. And then right upper quadrant pain. Uh, Pale stools develop around one week later. And then more liver symptoms are coming after, including jaundice, pruritus, And most transmission occurs before the jaundice happens. Most children actually are asymptomatic, and 70% of children under six don't get any symptoms. Now, what do you do in terms of uh, workup? What tests are you ordering, and what are you finding with these tests? Well, patients have elevated liver enzymes. Usually the ALT is greater than the AST. The ALTs can be really high, up to 500 in 1,000. These numbers can actually peak after around three to four weeks, and then they go down weekly by about 75%. You can get increased alkaline phosphatase. You can get a bilirubin. You can get a bilirubin up to 10. Mild lymphocytosis. But the most important lab finding is an IgM anti-hepatitis A-specific immunoglobulin. So the IgM anti-hepatitis immunoglobulin is what you really need to be certain that this is hepatitis A. Also, looking for elevated creatinine. A creatinine over 2.0 is also just kind of a worrisome finding that these patients may have a more difficult course. So did you test everybody for the hep A-specific IgM? Because how long after exposure would you expect that to be positive? Because it wouldn't be right away, I wouldn't think. Yeah, the good thing is the IgM hepatitis A tests are usually positive 5 to 10 days before symptoms. And with the length of time since the exposure happened, even though there's a long incubation period, it was appropriate timing for me to get my patients tested. The IgM positive levels are highest after a month and can stay positive for up to six months. And the good thing with diagnosis here is imaging is not really needed, but ultrasounds are done at times. Now, hep A, like a lot of different viruses, can cause extrahepatic manifestations. And with this one, we can see a rash, we can see acute kidney injury, pericarditis, cholecystitis, interstitial nephritis, and and even more than that, but, but that's a lot. Oh, and you could get Guillain-Barre syndrome or pancreatitis or reactive arthritis and anemia. Way too many things could happen to these patients. All the things, all the things. Yeah. Well, this is a little different because I knew what we were looking for. But if someone comes in with acute hepatitis, there are many other things in our differential. Of course, we have the other viral hepatitides on our differential, along with alcoholic hepatitis and autoimmune hepatitis and medication-induced hepatitis, and uh, I could go on, but pretty much anything that might cause a hepatitis is on the list here. Yeah, treatment is easy but complex for hepatitis A, which we know is supportive care, but supportive care is not the answer you want for around that 1% that gets fulminant hepatitis. One of the things they talk about with hepatitis or with jaundice back in the day was icterus, the yellow eyes, and the old-school treatments, I find, are some of the wildest. So many years ago, back in the day, there's a rumor that if you had jaundice from hepatitis, you could be cured by gazing into the eyes of a yellow bird and that you could transfer the yellowest hue from your skin into the bird's body, which is a much cooler answer than supportive care. Will it work or not? Wow, what a lot of pressure for budgies or like any other bird that's yellow, eh? Oh yeah, recovery can take weeks to months. At this time, you want to avoid hepatotoxic agents. 
Tylenol and alcohol should be avoided while sick. 10 to 15% of patients can take up to six months to recover, and symptoms can wax and wane during this recovery period. Patients can really feel better and then have their symptoms come back on for a few weeks. So these waxing and waning symptoms are actually pretty common with hepatitis A. And if a patient has extra hepatic manifestations, we need to specifically treat those. And in severe cases, liver transplantation is needed. So what did you do for all of your patients who were calling with their concerns? First, I reviewed the CDC guidelines so I was ready to give our best recommendations. So about prevention. Number one, vaccinate, vaccinate, vaccinate. In 2006, children started getting vaccinated in the United States, and rates of hepatitis A went from 6 per 100,000 to 0.4 per 100,000 in just a few years. A quick reminder that vaccines work and we should get vaccinated. The question for me was vaccinate my unvaccinated patients versus vaccinate an immunoglobulin. The immunoglobulin gives protection for around three months. The immunoglobulin cannot be given two weeks before or six months after the MMR or varicella vaccines. And the immunoglobulin obviously can't be given if you have allergies. At travel visits, you know, pre-exposure prophylaxis with the vaccine is often recommended. So when I look at cdc.gov, I'm often giving the hepatitis A vaccine to patients before they travel. Mm-hmm. The key here is patients younger than 40, post-exposure prophylaxis with just the vaccine is recommended. So anyone younger than 40, the vaccine helps prevent them from developing significant hepatitis A. And patients older than 40 are recommended to get the immunoglobulin and the vaccine. Also, you can vaccinate anyone older than six months old if they've had a severe exposure. Here, most of our patients are vaccinated between 12 and 24 months. But the key is over 40, vaccine and immunoglobulin. Younger than 40, just vaccinate. Hmm, that's a helpful pearl there. So how did it turn out for your patients? And for you, Chris, all of you restaurant frequenters. Yeah, so my patients all were okay. And we actually had zero patients of mine at this time that tested positive for hepatitis A. The people that had already been sick, it had really already happened by the time it had hit the news. And in the end, there were three total deaths, which is pretty uncommon because usually one out of 100 people with hepatitis A had fulminant liver failure, but none of the patients uh, I screened were positive and and my patients were okay. Wow. Wow. That uh, sounds like a lot of patients uh, outside of your practice were were positive. So good news for your patients, good news for you, and uh, hopefully that restaurant will never ever again be subject to a hepatitis A outbreak. You want to wrap it up? Oh, yeah. Take home points. So, vaccinate exposures and consider vaccination and immunoglobulin for those older than 40 and those unable to get the vaccine. This is common worldwide and is now being found in outbreaks, and so we need to keep our eyes out for it. Still screen those with hepatitis without an answer and get the IgM hepatitis A testing. Remember, there's a long incubation period. Remember to wash your hands. And knowing about hepatitis, it's as easy as A, B, C. One, two, three. As simple as do, re, mi, A, B, C. Hepatitis and me and Heidi. Mm, nice. Yeah, and at uh, Ashton Kutcher's 30th birthday party, there was a hepatitis A outbreak. And Madonna was there, and Gwyneth Paltrow was there, and Demi Moore was there. And a lot of famous people uh, almost may have gotten it, or we don't know, were at least exposed to hepatitis A. The unnecessary things I find in preparing an episode is amazing. 
Pharmacology Round with Brian Hayes. Brian Hayes. And Gita Pensa. <laughs> Get out of here. Hey, Brian, how you doing? I'm doing well, Gita. How are you? Of course, that's Brian Hayes and Gita Pensa, and they're going to talk about fluoroquinolones. And guess what? Fluoroquinolones are bad. Well, sometimes they're good, but they're also bad, and they have lots of side effects and stuff. Here, we'll discuss. Today, I would like to talk about two classes of antibiotics that once upon a time I loved to use and I used super liberally, but now I'm moving away from, as I think many clinicians are. And so the two classes of antibiotics I want to talk about today are first the quinolones, and the second is, well, sulfa, specifically trimethoprim, sulfa, or bactrim. And actually, actually what we're going to do is make these two separate chapters because uh, there's so much to go over your brain will explode. So we're going to make these into two separate ones. This one, quinolones. Antibiotics, part one. All right. Well, you started off strong by introducing our favorite topic, but uh, the fluoroquinolones are my least favorite antibiotic class. So I guess we should do them first. Least? Least favorite? Least favorite. That is true. That does something. Okay. Well, let's start with those quinolones then. They came out of the gate really strong. Like They were everybody's darling for a while. We were prescribing them for everything from like simple UTI to pneumonia to sexually transmitted infections. Yeah, that's a true story. They can be used for a lot of things, which is great. There's just so many indications out there that they have some spectrum of activity against, which is that's a good thing. That's one of the positives. All right. Well, there are the run of the mill side effects that, you know, every antibiotic has a laundry list of them, but, you know, diarrhea, headache, nausea. But let's talk about a really big one first. Let's talk about tendinopathy and tendon rupture. What can you tell us about that and quinolones? Yeah. So the the FDA puts out black box warnings. That's what we used to call them. They're just called boxed warnings now. And, And what this means is that it doesn't mean that you can't use a drug, it just means that in specific situations or with specific types of patients, there may be more risk than benefit to using it. And the fluoroquinolones have four of these boxed warnings. One of them is about the tendinopathy and tendon rupture. One. So if you compare it to no antibiotics or even some of the other antibiotic classes, there's a four times higher risk of Achilles rupture with fluoroquinolones. And if you add steroids on board, which when you think about it, a lot of times we might be using them for respiratory infections like COPD, and they may have or be on steroids to begin with, or we may be starting steroids Mm -hmm. at the same time, the risk goes from four-fold higher to 43 times higher. So really a big, big risk when you're talking about fluoroquinolones. Wow. That is, that's something. It is. And unfortunately, the risk actually can last beyond the course of therapy. So if you're taking them for seven days, you're still technically at risk for the next couple of weeks which is why in the olden days, we used to tell like athletes to kind of chill for a little while if they were on these and for some time afterwards. Now, it's easy to look at those numbers, the fourfold and the 43fold and think, oh my gosh, like that must be everybody. Now, if we kind of break this back into how many patients do I need to treat for them to be affected, the risk is about one in Mm -hmm. 6,000 that will actually develop an Achilles rupture if you give it and one in 4,000 with steroids. So you personally may not ever prescribe that much. In fact, I hope you don't. (laughs) But as a big practice or as a big hospital site or a big urgent care facility, you may get to that number at some point with collectively. And so, you know, there definitely is that risk. I've seen it twice in patients who had been recently on quinolones. And so I guess when you think about how many people are prescribed quinolones in the community on any given week, you could see people with it. So yeah, I've seen it twice. Two. Let's talk about hypoglycemia and mental health side effects. Yeah. The hypoglycemia, hyperglycemia, it's, it's dysglycemia, so you could have either. 
if you're talking specifically about diabetic patients, about 10 in 1,000 will develop hypoglycemia and about 7 in 1,000 will develop hyperglycemia. So again, relatively rare, but this in the few studies that looked at it actually led to increases in hospitalization. So it is important, particularly in your diabetics, to talk with them about the risks, closer glucose monitoring while they're on this therapy if they need to be. And then the seizures and neuropsychiatric effects, those are important. And those are important enough that it is one of the four boxed warnings, like we talked about with tendinopathy. I'll never forget my first rotation as a first year pharmacy resident. So this is kind of like your intern year for physicians, Mm -hmm. where you kind of rotate a month in in all the different units to kind of get used to the hospital and, and hospital practice. So my first rotation was in the surgical burn ICU at UMass, actually, not too far from where you and I both are now. Mm-hmm. And there was a patient that had been in the ICU for several weeks, was started on a levofloxacin. And within three days or so, her renal function had slowly been getting worse over that time. And the dose was not adjusted. And she developed seizures. She had two of them mm-hmm. and never had seizures in her life before. And we ended up attributing that to the levofloxacin and discontinued it and, and things resolved. But I'll never forget that. And, you know, so it is, it is a real thing that can happen. Wow. All right. Let's see. What else have we got? Three. QT prolongation. Is that one real? Yeah, that one's real too. Uh, moxifloxacin has the highest risk, and that's one that we typically would think about using outpatient for pneumonia maybe, but the others do have risk. So I kind of put this in the category, a little bit more risk than kind of like your azithromycins. But if patients are on other QT prolonging medications, like methadone's a common one that we see, mm-hmm. or they have prolonged QT at baseline, it might be worth considering another class of antibiotics. Four. Quinolones can exacerbate muscle weakness in patients with myasthenia gravis, and I'm probably missing stuff here. No, that's, that's the big one. Now, you could make the argument, rightfully so, and I'd agree with you, that pretty much any antibiotic can affect myasthenia patients. Mm. But fluoroquinolones and aminoglycosides have the highest risk out of all of them, so definitely avoid fluoroquinolones in myasthenia patients. All right, let's move on to what I feel like is a newer warning, this warning about the aorta, fluoroquinolones being associated with higher incidences of aortic aneurysms, iliac aneurysms, or abdominal aneurysms, like just aorta terribleness. What is the story with that? I agree with you. It is a little bit newer. This is not one of the four boxed warnings, but I think it is an important one. It's rarer than the Achilles or rupture or the tendinopathy. There was the big study in JAMA Internal Medicine, I think, in 2015 that really kind of put the spotlight on this adverse effect. The relative risk is about 2.4, and the number needed to harm in patients over 65 is about 618. So it's a pretty high number, but you do have to be concerned about it. So if there are patients that already are at risk for or have pre-existing aortic injury, those might be patients to avoid fluoroquinolones in. Okay. All right. More people to think about avoiding it then. Okay. Interactions. And what about drug interactions with quinolones that we should keep in mind? Yeah, in terms of the drug interactions, it's probably one of the better areas for fluoroquinolones. They don't have a ton. We already talked about the QT issue, so just avoiding multiple QT prolonging medications while they're on this course of therapy. I've seen a couple of cases where patients are on warfarin and then they'll start like a ciprofloxacin regimen and come in with an INR of nine because mm. it w- wasn't thought about. Mm-hmm. But the one that I wanted to highlight today that is not a new interaction, but it's getting a little bit more press recently is, and I don't want to get too far into the specifics here, but Cipro inhibits some of the cytochrome enzymes that we all know about from the liver. And there's one specific one, 1A2, which is not one of the more common ones. 
So other drugs that are metabolized by that enzyme, the levels will get raised because they're not getting metabolized properly because of this, mm. the, um, the fluoroquinolone. So the one that has come to mind recently is tizanidine, which is a muscle relaxant. Now, I know you and I may not use this like inpatient very much, mm -hmm. but I do see this a lot in the outpatient setting, in the urgent care areas, even in our ED OBS unit. And so just be wary of using ciprofloxacin with any of those drugs that can be metabolized by 1A2. Caffeine's another one. Potentiate <laughs> <laughs> your caffeine. <laughs> Maybe actually you may want to do it for that. You can keep your caffeine high longer. So, all right. All right. Now that we've scared everyone out of ever prescribing a quinolone, I suppose we should talk about the instances where we could at least consider using them. So let's start with diverticulitis, because even though Augmentin is a monotherapy option, most GI doctors and surgeons I talk to still want that ciprofloxacin-metronidazole combo. They do. I agree. And that's the same at my shop. But you can substitute other similar coverage agents to ciprofloxacin. You can use a cephalosporin. So you could use something like cefuroxime or cefpodoxime, still pair that with metronidazole, and you get pretty much the same coverage with a lot less risk of the adverse effects. So, you know, in an otherwise young, healthy patient that's not playing a ton of high level sports, you know, a, a short course of ciproflagyl may not be that bad of an idea. But if you're talking about the patients that are more likely to get diverticulitis, like the older adults, they're going to have a lot more reasons to avoid Cipro if possible. So cephalosporins can be a substitute. All right. That makes sense. What about UTI? Because quinolones aren't really first-line therapy for simple cystitis, but they're still first-line for pylo, right? Yeah, for they are. This guideline from IDSA is like over a decade old now. Um, I, I haven't looked recently to see if it's one of the ones that's on the docket for being updated soon, but they do still recommend fluoroquinolones first-line and I will say that if you're looking specifically at how antibiotics do at clearing the bacteria, fluoroquinolones are superior to cephalosporins, which is why we normally use cephalosporins for a longer course if we're going to choose those. Mm. But if resistance patterns are high, and in a lot of places they are, and given everything that we've discussed so far, I still don't think that they're a great choice. What we do a lot of times is we'll use either aminoglycosides or we use ceftriaxone if they need an IV dose which they don't always, and then they can go home on something like a cefpodoxime or something like that. Okay. So we've been using cephalosporins a little bit more liberally in the pilo patients to avoid fluoroquinolones. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, how about pneumonia? Because we used to love that levofloxacin monotherapy for five days. Yes, we did. <laughs> and the CAP guidelines were updated in 2019, and fluoroquinolones are still listed as an alternative therapy in a lot of different patients, both outpatient so urgent care type patients and inpatient. So you still can use them. What we've been doing instead is using doxycycline plus a cephalosporin. So whenever I would normally do a fluoroquinolone, we've been using doxy plus a cephalosporin. You could use azithro also, but we've been doing doxy. All right. So any other scenarios where maybe we would advocate for quinolone use? Like how about when we're thinking about pseudomonas and treating that as an outpatient, like malignant otitis externa or a really severe hot tub folliculitis? Yeah, those are really good specific scenarios. So I think it, I still think it's okay to consider them if the benefit outweighs the risk or where there are other good treatment options. And for example, the pseudomonas one that you mentioned, there's not a lot of good oral options to treat pseudomonas outside of fluoroquinolones. So if you have, if you need IV therapy and you're admitting a patient, fine, there's totally other options, but for outpatients, not really as much. I will mention though that the patients taking fluoroquinolones are at high enough risk 
that the FDA published a safety alert back in 2018 that recommended that in a couple of specific scenarios, uncomplicated UTI, acute bacterial exacerbation of chronic bronchitis, and acute bacterial sinusitis, that we should only use fluoroquinolones if there are no alternative treatment options. So I like that statement for those three indications. Mm -hmm. I would extend that to most of the other ones that we use also, except for some of the ones that you mentioned, because there are other great options. I'll also say that, and I think you know this from all the work that we do with, with MRAP, is that it takes a long time to change practice. And there was a group that looked at how the safety alert in 2018 had changed practice. And it turns out that it really didn't change prescribing practices hardly at all. So I'm not surprised by that. So we still have a lot of work to do in the education area. Summary. So fluoroquinolones, they used to be so good and we use them very liberally. And now we've got lots of problems with them. There's lots of resistance. There's lots of tendinopathies. There's QT prolongation. They can make you kooky. There's a lot of reasons, particularly in the elderly and in athletes, to not use these drugs. And so when you're looking at a patient and you've decided that they've got a disease that requires antimicrobial therapy, try as much as you can not to use a fluoroquinolone. There are two exceptions or two reasons, I think good reasons to use it in an outpatient setting, and that would be malignant otitis externa and that hot tub folliculitis, which is very bad, those pseudomonas things. In other cases, you could probably use other stuff a lot of the time. As in all antimicrobials, the key thing is, do you really need it? Because we use antimicrobials so much more than they're actually needed. So just remember, this is not a zero-sum game. Fluoroquinolones have all of the complications of every antimicrobial, plus a couple of ones that are very specific. And if you use them enough, somebody's going to rupture a tendon and go crazy. Penny, how is the conversation around contraception different with adolescents? So the first thing I want people to consider is the local requirements around consent for minors because it does differ by jurisdiction. But in general, the conversation for adolescents compared to older adults is more the same than it is different. For example, LARC's long-acting reversible contraception is still recommended as first-line option due to their high efficacy and patient satisfaction. And you know what's interesting about that is that as of 2017, less than 6% of adolescent women have ever used a LARC. That's surprising to me. And why do you think that is? It is a bit surprising. And I think part of it is that there is a lack of awareness or understanding for patients. And also there are barriers in terms of cost or access to skilled people who can insert implants. And I wonder also if it's due to misconceptions on the part of healthcare providers as well. Yeah, I think that comes into it too. But in fact, IUD insertion is not more difficult in adolescence, despite some people believing that it is. The risk of perforation of the uterus is the same as for older women, around 0.1%. And so generally, IUD insertion is safe in adolescence. It does not increase the risk of infertility or PID, although it's a good idea to screen for chlamydia and gonorrhea when you're inserting it. But the one thing to consider is that the literature is a bit mixed as to whether expulsion is more likely in adolescents compared to women over the age of 20, but either way, it's less than 10%, so still pretty low. Now, I will mention that the CHOICE study showed that when counselled appropriately and given free access to all the options, a majority, so more than two-thirds of adolescents, chose a LARC. And the continuations and the satisfaction rates were twice as high as those using short-acting contraception. So in summary, we should be using LARCs for adolescent patients. 
yeah, we should definitely be getting it above that 6%, that's for sure. But the ideal situation is really more of a dual method use for younger folks. So you want to have an effective method like a lark, which is really good for preventing pregnancy, and also condoms to protect against STIs. Now, what would be another option for adolescents who don't like the idea of a lark? All the other short-acting hormonal methods are also available to younger women. So the principles of good patient education, shared decision-making, and respect for patient autonomy still apply. Now, the combined oral contraceptive pill, of course, does have some advantages in terms of suppression of ovulation, and it can be particularly helpful in controlling the timing of periods. And it can also help with some other symptoms like acne, heavy or painful periods, or PMDD. So there are reasons why people would prefer that over a lark. What about depomedroxyprogesterone acetate? This is the three-monthly injection that falls somewhere between a lark and a short-acting method. When cost and access barriers are eliminated, those who get their repeat injections in the recommended time frame have very good contraceptive efficacy, similar to LARCs. I know in the past we've been concerned about its impact on bone density. What's the latest on that? Yeah, many of us are aware of the potential for losses in bone mineral density for teens who use the depot injection. And for that reason, in 2004, the FDA put a black box warning on the depot advising against using it for more than two years. However, we now know that the bone loss recovers after the depot is ceased and the bone loss is not associated with an increased risk of fracture. Therefore, the ACOG recommends that it may be used indefinitely in adolescents or older women. Recap. All right, Penny, I'm going to wrap this all up here just by quickly summarizing what you said. For adolescents, long-acting reversible contraceptives like IUDs are the preferred ones, but uptake is not fantastic. The combined oral contraceptive pill can definitely be used and is helpful for some things like acne and cycle regulation. The needle, Depo, Depo-Medroxyprogesterone is certainly a good option and does not thankfully have the impact on bone health that we once thought it did. And probably the biggest take-home message here is ensure that our patients are also using protection against sexually transmitted infections. Don't forget those condoms. Thanks so much for joining us for this quick update, Penny. Thanks so much for having me. We'll catch you next time. No matter how you look at it, people with disabilities are dying and being affected by the lack of knowledge in medical education and the accessibility. So the barriers are so great that we end up feeling really defeated by the healthcare system that is built to literally, you know, protect us. And, and we want to be independent. We want to take care of ourselves. But then we end up in the emergency room with something really bad that literally could have been taken care of before. I know everyone listening here is familiar with this phenomenon. You go through training, however many years that is, you learn so many different things about so many aspects of healthcare and caring for patients, but then you get into practice and you discover that there are incredible knowledge gaps in your learning. And I've come to think of these deficiencies as gaping wounds. Gaping wounds because it leaves us at a loss in terms of helping our patients and actually can result in harms for our patients if we don't know how to meet their needs. And the area in which many of us fall the most short is in the care of those with a disability. And what do I mean by a disability? It can be anything from hearing impairments to paralysis to intellectual disability. 
And how do we change this? How do we make sure that we have the knowledge we need at the bedside? Part of what needs to happen is connecting with those who have disabilities and saying, listen, we know this is an area in which we are deficient. How can we change? Teach us what you need us to know. And towards that end, we're very lucky to have a special guest with us here today. Her name is Cody Unser. She is co-founder of the Cody Unser First Steps Foundation, which is a global nonprofit that's dedicated to raising research funds, public awareness, and quality of life. For those afflicted with all forms of spinal cord-related paralysis, she's a passionate advocate for the spinal cord injury community and increasingly for the disability community at large. It's such a privilege to have you here, Cody. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm so excited, Heidi. Thank you so much for having me and providing me this opportunity to raise awareness on a very important issue. Now, Cody, do you mind telling us why this is such an important topic? Well, if you kind of put the stats into perspective, we, you know, globally, there are 1 billion people on the planet with a disability. That's 15% of the population. Here in the U.S., uh, there are 61 million Americans living with a disability. So, yeah, it's, it's also personal to me because I became paralyzed when I was 12 years old due to transverse myelitis, which is a, an autoimmune disorder where my own immune system attacked my spinal cord. And um, it's a rare disorder that, you know, kind of gets misdiagnosed. It happened to me within 20, 30 minutes when I was playing basketball. I was 12 years old in the sixth grade. It changed my life forever. <laughs> Those early days of rehab and learning how to live with a paralyzed body were extremely difficult. The depression is real. The loss and, you know, you grieve over your identity that you used to have. I was very active as a kid. I grew up in auto racing. My family are race car drivers. So I was always on the go and always, you know, you didn't I didn't have to think about how to, you know, move my body. You know, we just do it. Back when we were prepping for this chat, you told me a little bit about the origins of the Cody Unser First Step Foundation, and this was founded by yourself and by your mom to bring attention to and to address some of the challenges within the spinal cord injury community. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission of your foundation? You know, awareness was extremely important because transverse myelitis is a rare and unknown disorder. And getting doctors and research hospitals to share data is really important, especially with something like transverse myelitis and other rare neuroimmunological disorders like MS. And then we kind of jumped into sort of the world of paralysis, and I got connected with the Christopher and Dana Reeve Foundation. And Christopher Reeve is one of my heroes because he was Superman. I mean, he soared and flew in the sky. And he became the face and the voice of paralysis in terms of, you know, research around curing paralysis and spinal cord injury, which I do think is important because the promise is so, is so there. But what do we do about, you know, our existence now and our quality of life now? This is an identity that we should be proud of. We should celebrate, you know, our quality of life matters. Our, our lives matter. Accessing healthcare, not just any old healthcare, but healthcare that can help you with your specific problems is part of leading a full, healthy life. But your advocacy and research has really led you to identify barriers that those with disability face when they interact with the healthcare system. It's really hard to get, you know, physicians outside 
of the spinal cord injury specialty or the disability specialty to really pay attention to what's going on with our bodies because they weren't exposed to it in medical school or, you know, the, the society's stereotypes around how we exist, you know, our, our quality of life, just it's, it's a struggle and it's, that's a huge barrier. Now, you've given grand rounds to innumerable programs across the country on the topic of specifically accessing gynecologic care. And the Grand Rounds is called Wheelchair Barbie Goes to the Gynecologist. And in that, you share two stories, one that perfectly highlights physical barriers to care and another that talks about how our attitudes and our assumptions impact care and how patients feel when they interact with us. Would you mind sharing those? So I made an appointment at an OBGYN And when I showed up at the appointment, there were stairs immediately down to the front door into the clinic. So, all right, well, you know, as anybody with a disability or a wheelchair user knows, you start looking for, all right, where's the elevator? Where's the ramp? Where's the other way to get in? There was no other way. I called the clinic and I talked to the receptionist and said, my name's Cody Anser. I'm here for my appointment. But I am paralyzed, I'm in a wheelchair, and I can't see how I can get in. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry, we don't have, we don't have an elevator. Uh, I mean, I stunned her. Like, she literally didn't know what to tell me. But I had to cancel that appointment. And I bet that whether or not you can get into the clinic isn't the only physical barrier. Can I actually park where the clinic's at? What about the exam table? The, the exam table is always way too high, no matter what office I go into. I can't transfer on top of it. It's always way too high, way too narrow. There aren't any sort of safeguards around it because I do spasm upon touch, upon any time I move my body to a different place. And, you know, I can li- easily spasm right off that table. And you just feel discouraged. Like every single time you deal with these barriers, you literally feel discouraged every time to really take care of yourself. Okay, I'm sitting here listening to you, realizing that you would face those same problems, or at least a lot of those problems at our clinic too. So this is very humbling. Let's move on to attitudinal barriers, Cody. So women with disabilities, we do get discriminated a lot against, you know, not only are we sexually active, you know, that, that question and that assumption that we're not is very strong and prominent in the healthcare system. So I remember one time I was there with my mom and we were inside the exam room already. And the nurse had just, you know, she took my vitals and then she had just left. She kept the door kind of cracked open. And then the provider was was right there. And so we heard the nurse tell the provider, oh, by the way, she is sexually active. As if to sort of prepare the physician of what they were about to walk into. Right. So this nurse's default assumption was that somebody with paralysis could not be or would not be sexually active. So the fact that you were was noteworthy and she felt the need to mention it to the physician. That's quite the stereotype. I mean, it's, it's surprising, but not. Dr. Leslie Lazzoni and her team of researchers at the University of Harvard, at Harvard and also um, Massachusetts General Hospital, They came out with sort of a study around the perceptions of physicians around people with disabilities. And basically what they did was, you know, they took, they surveyed, I think it was around 800 physicians around the country, 
just to get what, you know, they think about, just to kind of understand where and how they think about people with disabilities. And it's shocking. I mean, it, the results show that 82% of physicians perceive people with disabilities as having a lower quality of life. So if they automatically perceive people with disabilities as having a lower quality of life, they will then care and treat based on that perception. So that's a really big problem. Yeah, huge problem, huge problem. We'd like to think that our assumptions and our attitudes about people don't influence the care that we give them, but that really just is not the case. Let's shift our attention to educational barriers, Cody. Now, when I think of a disability like paralysis, I tend to focus more so on the condition itself, like the paralysis, often forgetting that there are secondary impacts of this condition that may be as, if not more concerning to my patient. When you become paralyzed, everything slows down. And then also just you deal with the secondary conditions that come with having a spinal cord injury, like, you know, bowel and bladder, maintenance care, nerve pain. I have scoliosis now because I'm paralyzed kind of at the T4 level. So my spine has kind of gone wherever it wanted to go. Pressure sores are really, you know, something that we always deal with, especially wheelchair users because we sit all the time. There's just a lot of secondary conditions. Autonomic dysreflexia, which is a huge major one that a lot of emergency room physicians, family physicians, primary care, they don't know about, but really should because it's, it's kind of a life-threatening condition. It's your own body's alarm system, basically. So anything that happens below the level of an injury. So when I'm on my menstrual cycle, when I have, you know, when I'm on my period, I have cramps. I can't necessarily feel them, but my body still does. So I'll get goosebumps. I'll get flushed in my face. Sometimes I get a really bad headache. This is the reason why I can't use tampons. It's literally just my body telling me, all right, Cody, something's wrong. You better fix it or your blood pressure is going to raise. You have the threat of a stroke or death. <laughs> so it's a really big problem. Now, I'll admit to not recalling having learned much about these conditions in training and looking through our MRAP resources here, I realize we fall short on covering this content area too. So this is something that we are going to do a better job at. But in the meantime, can you point us to resources that will help the clinician at the bedside? I was so happy to be invited by the American Spinal Injury Association to be part of their primary committee because literally for the past, what, three, four years now, we've sort of developed, you know, kind of the bridge between SCI, spinal cord injury care, and primary care. Because if I do get a bladder infection here in Albuquerque, New Mexico, I need to then reach out to my primary care physician. And they should have the tools and knowledge and the resources available to really kind of help me deal with my UTI, which kind of happens frequently because I am paralyzed and I self-cath. So we developed this resource that I highly suggest your listeners and if you're in the medical field or if not, like even just go check it out because it really kind of prepares you with, you know, what are secondary conditions that people with spinal cord injury deal with? I kind of named the top ones, which are the bladder and bowel, nerve pain, autonomic dysreflexia, osteoporosis, you know, um, scoliosis, pressure sores. There's articles, you know, as, as family physicians, just to be able 
to really kind of provide your patient with as much care and quality of care as possible is just really extremely important. I've looked at this website. It's excellent. The link is in the show notes. Please check it out. Let's talk about what needs to change in medical education and how we can make that happen. There's a phrase that's kind of trending right now that's literally really popular, nothing about us without us. And basically what that means and says is that at all levels of every decision making, at every business, every public entity, at every level of where decisions are made, people with disabilities must be included. The able-bodied world doesn't really know what goes on for those of us with disabilities and what is required or what's needed. And they're very, to us, they're very obvious. But again, because the medical model has been so great at perpetuating this idea about curing somebody with a disability, there isn't that understanding. Now, you are so committed to improving medical professionals' education and knowledge about the disability community, that you are actually embarking on a PhD in medical curricular studies to make sure that we learn what we need to learn during training. You and others in the disability advocacy community are the people we should be listening to. You are the people who live this day to day. We need to ask you, what should we be doing differently? What needs to be changed? Because it's literally, it's a no-brainer to me, right? And for all the other disability organizations out there and all the advocates and activists trying so hard to really integrate disability curriculum and content into medical school, there's a bunch of organizations like the Alliance for Disability Education and Healthcare. They're an amazing organization and they already have the core competencies for what medical students need to know about disability in order to be the best provider to everybody, right? This is all about being inclusive, not shutting people out. The problem is, and I might be calling them out, but the accreditation bodies and agencies and organizations, those organizations that literally dictate what goes into medical schools and the curriculum, I don't really know what the issue is when it comes to accrediting disability content into medical school, but the accessibility issues, like the physical barriers, that's not just the only thing that we're dealing with. We're also dealing with physicians and providers who really just don't have the education. And on top of that, like the attitudes and stereotypes around, you know, their patients with disabilities is so big. What is your pie in the sky, Cody? What does adequate medical training look like in this area? I believe and so heartily, and it's so many other people do that a semester-long comprehensive course needs to be integrated to medical schools. And the accrediting bodies that are in charge of that need to really look and take a step back on what we're all screaming about. Because it literally prepares everybody in the healthcare system. How do we transfer? How do we help you transfer from your wheelchair to the exam table? Or, you know, if I need to get an x-ray or an MRI, like anything like that, you know, accessibility issues. And then, of course, the, the adenotunal, you know, we need to get past this whole idea that, that we're something to be feared or we're diseased or, or ill or we're contagious <laughs> uh, because we're not, we're not a homogeneous group. We're very unique with different stories, different issues medically. One size doesn't fit all. We are made up of a variety of different things. 
So Cody, we're getting close to the end of our time here together. And I want to take the opportunity to thank you so much for sharing your story and your perspective on what it's like to access care as somebody who has a disability and for sharing some specific examples of the different types of barriers, be they physical, attitudinal, or educational. Chatting with you has really opened my eyes to things I'd never thought about before and aspects of my own practice that really need to change. And I feel confident in saying that everyone who listens to our conversation will see opportunity for change as well. I just see this sort of this ripple effect that needs to take place. Because literally you can get in a car accident tomorrow. Your life is now forever changed. You become paralyzed. You become disabled. You become part of the, the largest minority group that anybody can join at any time. And then now suddenly what do you do? Especially when it comes to your healthcare. I'm here to say, and a lot of other people are as well, that we need to figure out how to live our lives as best as possible. And we would like every entity in life to be a part of that solution, including the healthcare system. But if you don't have people with disabilities in any sort of aspect of what you're trying to do, you are literally ignoring an entire population that is just trying to live life to the fullest. If you are interested in checking out the resources that Cody mentioned, please head to the written summary where we've included links to them and also a link to Cody's nonprofit. Cody has presented grand rounds and done lots of other educational opportunities at many schools across the country. And I would invite you to contact her if you're interested in expanding your program's curriculum on this topic. And lastly, we are actively developing a more robust curriculum here at Right on Prime to help us better care for patients with disabilities, so stay tuned. Pharmacology Rounds with Brian Hayes. Brian Hayes. And Gita Pensa. <laughs> Get out of here. Well, let's talk about sulfur drugs and the problems they have. Remember that Gita and Brian Hayes talked about the fluoroquinolones, and they are a bit of a problem for a number of different disorders. Now, let's change track. Let's talk about sulfur drugs. Antibiotics, part two. Let's talk about trimethoprim sulfa, or it's so much easier to say Bactrim. Like, I know we're not supposed to be talking trade, but I might slip up and just say Bactrim because it's easier to say. But this is a really useful drug. And while it's not first line for pyelonephritis, we do use it a lot in uncomplicated cystitis and sinusitis that warrant antibiotics, not a lot of those, but, you know, when they do, or MRSA skin infections, all sorts of bacterial infections. They've got lots of great uses, except... Yep, I agree with all of what you said, except that we we just need to keep in mind some of the more important side effects and some of the drug interactions that may or may not be at the forefront of your mind when you're thinking of prescribing. Right. So it has the same common side effects as we were just talking about in the quinolones with those, the usuals, uh, you know, with the diarrhea, headache, et cetera, et cetera. But with trimethoprim sulfa, the rashes, the fixed drug eruptions, things like Steven Johnson syndrome, like those are much more common, correct? They are. Um, I've actually seen several cases of this SJS spectrum from Bactrim. So yes, it's definitely more common with this, this agent. And just skin rashes in general are, seem to be more common with Bactrim compared to most other antibiotics. So yes, those things are real and they, they are, can be serious, especially if they're on the SJS spectrum. Now remember though, for MRSA, skin and soft tissue infections, which is something that you and I see all the time, and this is applicable everywhere, including urgent care, is that doxycycline is a good alternative and a good MRSA treatment option if you need it in place of Bactrim. So if there's a patient where you would normally go with Bactrim 
but for some reason you're, you're worried about an interaction or a previous reaction or something like that, then you can go with Doxy instead. Interactions. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about those interactions and situations where you might want to hesitate in prescribing trimethrim sulfa. So let's talk about this drug and potentially fatal hyperkalemia. Yeah. So when I first started practicing in the ED 2006 to 2008 timeframe, there wasn't a lot of data on this. And then in 2010 and 2014, a couple of like really large studies were published in prominent journals that linked Bactrim or trimethoprim specifically with fatal hyperkalemia. And I don't think this gets as much airtime as it should. So on its own, we know that Bactrim can raise potassium levels, not a ton, but you know, a little bit. And when you mix this with other drugs that have similar effects, such as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, potassium-sparing diuretics, then you increase your risk more so. And this is where they think that the problem is. So the patients that I avoid this in are if you're over 65 and you're on an ACE or an ARB, then I am not giving you Bactrim. Now, you could do it with close potassium monitoring. The highest risk is during the actual course of therapy. But who wants to send their older adult patient back to the get their labs drawn daily for the next five to 10 days? I certainly don't think that's like a great use of their resources and time. So I just avoid it altogether and choose something different. Yeah, there are some drug interaction warnings or drug warnings that were like, yeah, we know like, oh, like QT, maybe a little bit of this, that this is like a real thing. People have died. They're absolutely death reported with this. And so this is something that should get more airtime, I think. I agree. And the good news is that it's finally being implemented in electronic medical records. So wherever you practice, if you were to prescribe this in the and and, and this is a big and in the patient's history in the chart has one of those agents listed, it should pop up a warning for you. Now, I realize we like to override those alerts regularly, but at least they're starting to recognize that this is important enough where these things should be in place to help prevent you from prescribing these or at least think twice about it. Yeah, that has definitely served as a good reminder for me because I have, you know, I'm capable of forgetting these things. And then when I see that, I'm like, oh, God, I didn't even notice they're on an ACE inhibitor. I, sh- I really shouldn't do that. And then go back and pick a different antibiotic. Okay, so it can cause hyperkalemia by itself in certain patients. It can interact with other medications to increase the risk of hyperkalemia as well. What other drug interactions should we be thinking about with trimethoprim sulfa? There's two because I don't want to overwhelm anyone that's trying to practice, like trying to remember, oh, I've got to remember the top 10 adverse effects of Bactrim. So I want to pick three. Hyperkalemia is the first one. Warfarin's the second. Um, but I will say, you know, as we progress in time, I've seen a lot less warfarin and a lot more of the rivaroxaban, apixaban class, which is good, but there still is a major interaction with warfarin and Bactrim. So just remember that. Mm-hmm. So if, you're, if it's the only option for you and your patients on warfarin, they need very close monitoring, and they probably will need some warfarin adjustment by their clinic during that course of therapy. And then the other one is sulfonylureas. Now, I realize also that in the diabetes world, these are not as first line as they used to be, but there's still a ton of patients on sulfonylureas, and Bactrim inhibits the metabolism of sulfonylureas, which causes more risk of hypoglycemia. Fluoroquinolones consequently can also have that, but Bactrim specifically does this. So hyperkalemia with ACEs or ARBs, warfarin, and then sulfonylureas. Those are three that I would actually avoid and choose something different than Bactrim. Okay. ACE inhibitors and ARBs, warfarin, sulfonylureas. Think twice. Great. With Bactrim, there are some other 
like rarer side effects that are serious, but that we don't really talk about. So the things I know about are aseptic meningitis, methemoglobinemia, acute interstitial nephritis, and I know it's contraindicated in pregnancy, neural tube defects, cornicterus, et cetera, et cetera. Is there anything else that I'm missing here that just we should just be vaguely aware of? I think you hit the main ones. I've seen AIN a couple times and I've seen methemoglobinemia, but none of these are ones where you're going to specific, unless maybe if someone has G6PD deficiency or something and you're a little bit more worried, but none of these are necessarily going to make you not prescribe this drug unless they've had this reaction specifically in the past two Bactrim. But they are good to be aware of, particularly if you're practicing in urgent care or the ED and you might see these as the result of being on Bactrim. It's good to recognize that that could have been the cause. Right. You could be the genius who, when they come in with their low sats and their chocolate brown blood, you're like, oh, they've been on Bactrim. I know exactly what this is. <laughs> Definitely. All right. So my takeaway here is that trimethoprim sulfa is still a workhorse antibiotic. Lots of indications, but we really have to think about the patient, shy away from it in older patients, and specifically those patients who are on those drugs that we mentioned, and obviously checking a pregnancy test before prescribing it and always keeping that risk of hyperkalemia in mind. Yeah, great summary. Agree. All right, Brian, thanks again, as always, for your expertise. Thanks for having me on. Rural Medicine Talks. I was coming in for an overnight shift and arrived, took sign out from my colleague. And in the middle of our sign out, the charge nurse comes in and says there's a ambulance coming in with a critically sick burn patient. They're bagging him and he has burns to his face and that's all that we know. And they're about five minutes away. Greetings all, this is Vanessa Cardi back here with another rural medicine piece. And today I have the honor and privilege of introducing a newcomer to the MRAP universe. This is Benjamin Mati. So Benjamin, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us a story? I trained in family medicine in Southern California and then did an acute care fellowship and a POCUS fellowship here and pretty much have been doing emergency medicine and ICU care in our hospital system here. So this case was shortly after my fellowship, I think maybe weeks after my fellowship in one of the rural hospitals that are as part of our system. So this emergency department is about 20 to 30 minutes away from our level two trauma. It's a small emergency department, about eight beds. Overnight, it's the single coverage. It's just the emergency doc in-house. Sometimes the hospitals will come in to do admissions. There's also deliveries. So sometimes the OB will come in to do deliveries, but a lot of times we're the only ones in-house and end up dealing with those issues as well during the night. Graciously, my older colleague offered to stay to at least assess the case as they came in. So the first thing my colleague and I did was we started assembling our team. We both recognized that this could be a really bad case or it could also sort of be an overcall. It was hard to tell, but we wanted to make sure that we were prepared for really anything. Luckily, this happened right around Synote. And as happens often in rural settings, staff graciously extended their shifts to help out. There were a bunch of nurses who made themselves available. One was able to work as a scribe. A couple of others were ready to attempt IV access because the paramedics hadn't been able to secure access. And of course, there was a nurse who was ready to work on medications. And they were even so lucky as to have a pharmacist around and an RT. And while all this was going on, 
Ben and his medical colleague were able to put their heads together and try and come up with a plan for taking care of this patient. We realized that airway was probably going to be the first and most critical thing that we would need to assess and potentially address. So we decided to have a, a double setup. So I went to the head of the bed and he started preparing tools for a surgical airway. And he was also preparing and helping the nursing get prepared because the respiratory therapist was pretty much brand new. I made sure that we had a large bore suction and the suction was working, made sure that we had a video laryngoscope and it was on and that we had a rigid stylet. He also had straight and curved blades for laryngoscopy, adjunctive airway equipment, and of course a bougie. The only real hiccup here was that the ultrasound machine was broken. When we were getting set up, I actually had called someone to come and try to fix the ultrasound machine. Then I started talking through the potential airway situations with the respiratory therapist. I talked him through bougie-assisted direct laryngoscopy. I mentioned that we might look with a video laryngoscopy that we might need to switch to direct. And then I mentioned that we might need to proceed with a cricothyrotomy. Right about that time, an ambulance pulled through, and my colleague and I saw that there was still a little bit of chaos going on among the staff. So we, we got everybody to sort of bring their level of anticipation down. We made the room quiet. We wanted to start off with a baseline level of calmness because we imagined that that calmness would slowly dissipate into entropy, but we wanted to start with a nice, calm baseline when the paramedics rolled in. The paramedics brought in a, a patient that looked horrible. He was burned and charred on his head, his face, his shoulders, his arms, and his chest. His arms were outstretched and, and he was moaning softly. His nose had been burned off and was completely charred. His lips were completely charred and his face was pretty unrecognizable. It couldn't tell an age. All of his hair was singed off. And it just was a, a shocking scene. And I, and I think everyone, all of the staff, when the doors opened and they wheeled a patient in, were just completely shocked. It's a picture in my mind that, that I won't forget. We got him onto the gurney. The only vital sign we had was sinus tachycardia in like the 180s. There was no IV access. We weren't able to get a blood pressure anywhere because his extremities were burned. We were able to palpate pulses on all four extremities, so at least I knew he was perfusing, probably. Got to work, we, we put him on the monitor as best we could. We got the sinus tachycardia. Somewhere a pulse ox was placed, I, I don't really remember where, but it was 100% and it was a good waveform. The nurses were wonderful. I think we had one or two nurses per extremity maybe trying to get an IV. I was at the head of the bed and assessing sort of the airway that we had in front of us. We put a, a high flow nasal cannula to the area where we thought his nose would be, at least to get a little bit of oxygen flowing. We had the bag valve mask with a peep valve on it to provide him some peep and oxygen as well. He was spontaneously breathing and moaning and moving all four extremities. So we realized that this was an urgent airway, but probably not an emergent airway. It wasn't going to have respiratory rest imminently. So we had time to optimize the situation to give us the best chance at securing an airway without any complications. So the first thing was getting access to be able to medicate the patient. A nurse was able to get some small gauge IV in the dorsal pedalis vein that I wasn't very confident in. 
as soon as I had seen that, my colleague actually had an IO and was placing an IO in the one area that wasn't burned on his right humerus because he was on the right side of the bed for the double setup. So we had IV access and we decided to move forward with a ketamine assisted awake intubation, knowing that there was probably going to be some airway edema and a difficult airway ahead. And we didn't want to have that race against apnea with all of that extra pressure. So we decided to keep him awake and, and try to take at least a look with uh, ketamine assisted. So we gave him ketamine. I started with a small bolus and his heart rate came down. His arms came down and, and his moaning sort of stopped, but he was still breathing and satting 100%. I was really happy to provide him with some analgesia and then also happy that we were probably gonna be able to have at least a good look with loading some more ketamine. We eventually gave a milligram per kilogram of ketamine, and I took a look with a video laryngoscope, and it was erythematous, edematous, there were secretions, there was charred areas inside of his mouth. I couldn't see anything really. So I took the laryngoscope out and I put in a direct blade, and I was able to see what looked like a really friable, red, swollen, angry, unhappy epiglottis. At that point, early in my career, this was terrifying for me. And I was describing all of this out loud to my colleague who was at the bedside. And we had discussed this type of situation. When we prepared the room, we turned the gurney enough so that it would be really easy for him and I to switch places. We didn't have wires, we didn't have supplies, we didn't have anything between us. And at this point, we decided to have him being the much more experienced provider, go in and, and take a look as well. So we switched spots. And he took a look with direct and saw the same exam as me. With the confidence of experience, he, he passed the bougie and pretty blindly, he, he got hang-up sign and was able to pass an endotracheal tube. During this time, I had been preparing. I actually had the scalpel ready on his neck on the part that my partner had already pre-marked, just in case that one attempt that he was going to do was unsuccessful. So at this point, we had a secure airway, which was wonderful. My colleague had been there all day. I thanked him and, and had him go home after a high five and moved on to the, the next set of tasks that was going to confront me for this patient. So the ultrasound machine that had been broken was now thankfully fixed. So Ben confirmed tube placement based on his finding of lung slidings bilaterally. There was no CAT scan, though, so he couldn't check for additional trauma. But he did a quick and fairly thorough fast exam, which turned out to be negative. The patient's heart was hyperdynamic. He had pretty good cardiac output. And Ben wanted to monitor the patient's hemodynamics by maybe putting in a central line, but because of the injuries to his neck, he couldn't do an IJ or a subclavian. So he used the ultrasound to place a triple lumen venous cath in the patient's femoral artery. The patient's blood pressure looked great, and so Ben was able to push propofol and fentanyl to further treat the patient's pain. By now, a lot of the nurses had left. We had our core staff there, and I started to get on the phone to our burn center. Of course, this being the rural medicine talks, the burn center was full and couldn't accept the patient. So I had to call around to other tertiary centers to try to find a critical care burn unit. Eventually, I did find one in the nearest urban center, and it took a little while, but I got the burn intensivist on the phone, and he was just absolutely wonderful. I described the case. He accepted the case, but unfortunately, there was a huge windstorm in Southern California so the helicopter wouldn't be able to arrive for several hours. 
So this was now turning into an acute care case, acute critical care case into a sort of regular critical care case, following up on all of the complications that could potentially come from this was going to be my job for the next several hours. Now, of course, when you have a patient this demanding, this time intensive, it's easy to forget what else is happening on your shift. Once Benjamin had stabilized the patient, he was finally able to take a step back and look at the rest of the ER. Which was totally full. Every bed was full. Our waiting room was flowing outdoors. So I was going to have a lot to do for the evening. I started seeing other patients in between reevaluating this patient. So it was maybe every five or 10 minutes, I'd come back around, make sure he was doing okay on the vent, make sure his sedation was okay, reevaluating the labs. I kept on repeating the FAST exam just to make sure that something wasn't developing in the meantime. At some point, I became concerned that I wasn't feeling his radial pulses as well as I had before. My concern then was that he was developing compartment syndrome from those circumferential burns. I had never done an SRotomy, so I called the burn intensivist, and he was wonderful, sort of talked me through it, referred me to a Google image to help me know the areas that were safe to make incisions. Our bovies were those battery-powered, sort of cheap ones, so I went through probably four or five of those to make these incisions, and the compartments felt much better after doing that. He didn't have any circumferential chest burns or neck burns, and he was doing well in terms of respiratory in terms of his vent status. So I didn't need to do a whole SRotomy, but doing it to the extremities was kind of enough for me to do. Eventually, the helicopter crew came and transported the patient to the tertiary unit. I followed up on how he did, and and unfortunately, he went into multi-organ failure and ended up being placed on palliative care. No family was ever able to be located. And as best as I understand, he was a homeless man who was sleeping on a bench and Someone came by and poured lighter fluid on him and, and set him on fire. And it was, it was just a horrible story. After the patient left, I had a sort of huddle with all of our team that was still there. And we talked it through and answered questions about management that some of the nurses had and the respiratory therapist and really thanked everybody because it was a really great team effort and it was it was a really hard case for people to, to see, I think. That sounds like a very harrowing experience medically um, in terms of all the different things that you had to consider and take care of, but also on a personal level. I mean, that's a really horrible story and so upsetting to think about what happened to this poor gentleman. But it sounds like he got the best care he possibly could have. And the fact that he made it even to the transfer is incredible. And so kudos to you and your team. There are a few things that I think are really good to point out here, just listening and reflecting back on what you said. The first one being how at the beginning, before the patient rolled in, with all the hubbub that was going on in the room and all the roles being assigned, you and your fellow staff tried to calm the room down. It's only going to get more chaotic. And so if you start at a point of high chaos, it's only going to get worse once the patient arrives. So if you can get everyone calmed down, everyone quiet, and hopefully listening to the first responders or paramedics or EMTs, whoever you have, and hear their story, because they're probably not going to stick around for a long time. Sometimes they're able to, and they're able to help, and, but sometimes they have to leave. So be quiet when they roll in so that everyone can hear the story, so everyone's on the same page. And this isn't to say that everyone is calm inside. Inside, everyone's freaking the heck out. 
but we have to just go through the steps and go back to our algorithms. And that's why they make the algorithms, right? So that we can fall back on them when we're in a chaotic state of mind. Another thing that I think is really great that you addressed right up front when he came in almost immediately was giving him some ketamine. It's so easy to focus on, you know, obviously the important things like the airway and the circulation. But burns obviously are incredibly painful. So imagine what that poor gentleman felt like and the fact that you were able to have the presence of mind to give him, you know, an, an analgesic dose of ketamine to start with before you started getting into the intubation setup is really key. Because the least we can do in someone who has essentially a critical, probably fatal injury is to take into consideration their pain levels. How many hours did you end up being with this patient in your department? Yeah, I went back and actually reviewed the notes in the timeline. I was with him for five and a half hours from when he came in until when he left. You painted a really clear picture of that feeling of when things start to be stable and, you know, you're coming out of doing all the different procedures and you don't realize how much time has passed necessarily. You're so wrapped up in it. And then you take a step back and you see, okay, this person's going to be okay. And then you get that bigger picture of what the rest of your emergency department looks like. And you're like, oh, things have really gone kind of chaotic while I've been in here, which makes sense because everyone's in that room. Everyone's taking care of this one patient. And the need to sort of mentally compartmentalize and say, okay, I've got this critical patient in the crash room. Obviously, I'm going to be reassessing them, you know, whether it's between every patient or between every other patient, you know, coming back, repeating the exam, repeating your assessments, checking in with the nurses, checking in with the RT if you have one, even though while you're still continuing to take care of the other patients in your department. And that can be really hard to do, particularly when you're at the beginning of, uh, of your career, I find. You know, it's, you get in there and there's someone critically ill and your mind says, okay, I've got to be with this person forever. But once they're stable and, you know, you're waiting for disposition, you still need to take care of those other patients, which can be really hard to do. You said near the beginning that you and your fellow staff felt that this was going to be an urgent airway, but not necessarily a crash, like emergent airway. Did you have a sense of how long it had been since this gentleman had been found? Or what gave you that feeling that maybe you had a bit of time to get this airway secured? I mean, his sats were good, obviously, with the mask, but was there any other factor? Did you get some story on history that helped you just take a breather in that sense? There was very limited history. The reason that we had approached it as urgent and not emergent is that he was still breathing. He was moaning. He was moving. He wasn't going to arrest within the next several seconds. So we had minutes probably. So we were able to take those minutes and use them to optimize our first pass success rather than being panicked and having that cognitive load that there is an emergent need to do something right now. We were able to reframe that as there is an urgent need and we have time to optimize our first pass. And I think that really highlights the way that your brain clearly works as an emergency physician, because I think for a lot of people, they would say, okay, an emergent airway has to be done, you know, now, and now could take several minutes, but urgent airway would be, you know, 20 to 30 minutes in some people's mind. But the timeline in emergency medicine is much shorter. So emergent airways for us is okay, you put the LMA in now while you're getting the, you know, the direct laryngoscopy or the crike set up. Whereas urgent is, you know, I have time to grab a few more of my toys and to get the RT there. So we've got minutes as opposed to seconds. Depending where you're working in the hospital, definitions of emergent and urgent will vary. Even one level above that, it's the, the cognitive reframing where the, the word emergency just like it kind of gives me a little jolt of adrenaline, whereas urgency, I'm kind of a little bit more chilled out and able to 
have a more of a mind space and less of a cognitive burden of, of the task. I was talking to some colleagues the other day, and we were talking about a patient who we were beginning to worry that they might need a surgical airway at some point, you know, if this didn't go well, if the plane didn't arrive, which is, of course, in rural areas is always a consideration. And they were nowhere near needing this, but we were just talking through what might happen, you know, in a few hours if this happens. And had someone had said, oh, well, then we might be doing a crash crike. And I'm like, let's try and get away from the term crash crike. Crike is already <laughs> scary enough. Like, yeah. and using the words, you know, crash implies chaos in some way. Whereas if you say, you know, like emergent crike or just crike, because by definition, basically in an emergency room, a crike is going to be pretty damn urgent. I think a lot of the way that we frame things and if we're able to be calm and show that it isn't stressing us out, at least on the outside, that's going to help cool everybody down in the room and uh, make it seem a little less stressful. One other thing that I had thought about was in terms of having the most experienced person in the room do that task that's going to be super critical. So at that point in my career, I wasn't confident to be able to take that airway. And I was had a sort of a situational awareness enough to be able to let my colleague do it, knowing that he was way more experienced and would have a much higher likelihood of success for that. It's really hard because we want to get more experience. And we always say, well, how are we going to get more experience if we're always letting the most experienced person do it? But there's going to be a time when that colleague doesn't happen to be there because, you know, it wasn't signed out. You're going to get your chance. There's going to be times when you're going to be alone and be thinking, oh, God, I wish I had a more experienced provider with me. So if there is a more experienced provider or someone who's had experience with this type of injury, then you hand it over. And that was another point I actually wanted to mention and really highlighted. I love the way that you and your colleague decided ahead of time that you would both be accessible to the head of the bed and that you removed any obstacles. This has happened to me so many times where there are two providers in the room, one is at the head of the bed and the other one's maybe at the side, you know, on the right side at the chest or doing an ultrasound, and you want the other person to have a look. And there are wires and there are tubes and there are suction cables and there are chest tube drains, and there's every possible obstacle in your way. And it actually creates a mental obstacle to asking for help because you think, how am I even gonna get this person around here? And, you know, accidents happen, chest tubes get pulled out, suction gets pulled out, oxygen gets disconnected from the wall. So creating the sense at the beginning that we might need two people to have a look at this and facilitating that is a fantastic, fantastic pearl. And I'm going to do that next time I'm in this situation, which I hope I'm never in because it sounds absolutely awful. <laughs> yeah, there was that MRAP segment uh, a month or two ago about optimizing the space for patient care and physicians. And I thought that was just wonderful because they're not really set up for, for this sort of thing. So I think taking the time to think about the patient and the needs and the sort of spatial awareness that you'll need and, and setting yourself up for success, I think that's, that's a great point to bring up. Well, thank you so much for sharing the story and for the work that you do. And I hope we'll hear another story from you sometime. Thank you so much. Primary Care Medical Abstracts with Ken and Steve. Welcome to the November edition of PCMA, part of Right On Right On Prime. I'm Ken Milne, and joining me as always to skeptically review the medical literature is Steve Brown. So skeptically and so happy to be here. 
but we were just chatting uh, beforehand and we've got some simpatico going on with some of these articles. So it's going to be interesting. I mean, we don't share our notes beforehand. We just talk, but it sounds like we've got some similar positions on some of the papers. So it should yeah. be an exciting edition. And some themes here. Themes too, yes. So let's just jump right in. I'm eager to get going on this. Paper one. So I've got number one, and this is the association between intensity of low-density lipoprotein cholesterol reduction with statin-based therapies and secondary stroke prevention meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials. Steve, I just thought this would be a great paper to start with, seeing that, you know, we've got Thanksgiving coming up, and other big holidays in November and December, and people's cholesterol level may go up a bit. So how intensely do you have to be worried and lower this LDL? So the objective of this study was to look at the association between intensive versus, yeah, whatever, less intensive LDL-lowering statin therapies for secondary ischemic stroke prevention, so secondary prevention. So the authors did a good search of randomized control trials, and they went back to 1970, digging up information, and they followed the PRISMA guidelines. And their primary outcome was patient-centered, a recurrent stroke. And then they had secondary outcomes, which were MACE events. And for this study, they defined MACE events as a cardiovascular death, non-fatal heart attacks, non-fatal strokes, or the nearest equivalent, and a hemorrhagic stroke. They found 11 randomized control trials with over 20,000 patients. Two-thirds were male. The mean age was 65 years. And the mean follow-up period was four years. And what they found was that intense treatment decreased your absolute risk of having a recurrent stroke by 1.2%. Now, there was no difference in how you got the LDL low. It didn't matter, you, you know, which strategy you used. The intense strategy had lower MACE events. It was about 2.8%, but it came with an increased hemorrhage stroke rate of 0.4%. And an increase in new diagnoses of diabetes, 1.7%. And there was no statistical difference in all cause cardiovascular mortality. And then they started looking at some subgroups, but we're not going to get into subgroups because you know how I feel about those. So here we have an example of potentially overinterpreting the results. Uh, several of the included randomized control trials were not investigating whether intense versus less intense lowering strategies work. That was not the purpose. That's not how these studies were designed. So you can only conclude some associations. For the trials, they weren't even blinded, which of course introduces potential bias. And then there was this weak point estimate of benefit. Their primary outcome of the number needed to treat of 87 patients intensely lowering their LDL over a commitment of four years to prevent one recurrent ischemic stroke. And for that, the number needed to harm was 236 for hemorrhagic stroke and a number needed to harm of 57 for developing diabetes. Now, the secondary outcomes involving the subgroups, yep, hypothesis generating and mentioning it in the conclusions, this is what got under my skin, that can be a bit misleading. You put it in the conclusion of your abstract, a secondary outcome. And remember that these potential benefits and potential harms take place in a very controlled environment of a clinical trial. These are randomized clinical control trials. Doing this kind of stuff in the wild 
the efficacy is likely to be less, and we know that the harms are systematically underreported in studies and so likely to be greater. Yeah, this study was a little bit too much of a hodgepodge for me, including the fact that authors love to confabulate putting someone on more medicine and lowering LDL. So they always say, oh, well, this lowered LDL more, so that must be why it worked. And we don't actually know that. Only one of these studies was treat to goal. So everyone says LDL of 70, treat to goal, treat to goal. Only one of these studies was treat to goal. Most were high versus low intensity statin, which I feel like we already know, although it does turn out that the evidence is weaker for secondary stroke prevention than secondary ASCVD prevention. There were only a few of the studies that were from azetamibe and PCSK9, which we're going to talk about in great detail in the next abstract. So for me, this doesn't really add anything to the literature. I think I would be inclined to for sure put someone who'd had an ischemic stroke on a high intensity statin, but I don't think there's any other information that can be gleaned from this, including the man, that subgroup of, you know, like having atherosclerosis and not having atherosclerosis, that seemed kind of like a, you know, patients born on a Tuesday did better kind of digging for data. Yeah, I didn't even want to mention it, but I would even put it further down on on the one in seven. I would say 12 astrological signs, you know, oh, you're a Libra. (laughs) It's going to work for you, but Tauruses, forget it. You don't get to have your data set and then dig through it and look for every single possible thing. In their defense, the title is association. So they even put that in the title. And so they're already declaring that they're not sure how strong this evidence is. Yeah, but then in the conclusions, thank you for being such a positive individual, but then in their (laughs) conclusions, they point out the subgroup. So yeah, I don't know. Bottom line. As with most things in life and medicine, Moderation seems best, and intensely lowering LDL to prevent recurrent stroke may not yield the net patient-oriented benefit. Paper two. Paper number two. These are the themes that we just randomly developed completely separately from each other, Ken, but this is PCSK9 inhibitors and azetamibe with or without statin therapy for cardiovascular risk reduction, systematic review, and network meta-analysis. This is BMJ. May 2022. And we know this is a good systematic review because one of the co-authors is the founder of evidence-based medicine, Gordon Guyatt, who I know comes from up north and is like probably one of the most famous Canadian doctors of all time. Yeah, he's out of McMaster University. Yeah, they have a Canadian Physician Hall of Fame and he's in it. Yes, he is. (laughs) So as we talked about before, We know that statins improve outcomes in people with coronary artery disease, secondary prevention. So there are two medication classes, which we hinted at in the last abstract that we need to dig a little deeper on here, in addition to statins that may play a role in cardiovascular disease prevention, azetamibe, and then the pro-protein convertase subtilicin kexin type 9 inhibitors, or PCSK9. The brand names are Alirocumab and Evolocumab, and they're approved as once every two-week injections. And a little note here, azetamibe costs five bucks a month here in the U.S. Statins are generic and cheap, most of them. The two PSK9 inhibitors, on the other hand, are about $500 per month. 
So these authors performed a network meta-analysis looking at cardiovascular outcomes with the two classes of medicines, either in patients already on statins or those intolerant to statins. So we're already saying you're for sure you should be on a statin. And we're mostly talking about patients on statins who still have an LDL over 70 milligrams per deciliter, which we already have mentioned, and I'll talk about again later. But they searched data sources, Medline, Cochrane, Good Search. The eligibility criteria were studies that were randomized controlled trials of azetamibe and PCSK9 inhibitors with over 500 patients and a follow-up of over six months. They did some fancy network meta-analysis, statistical jujitsu. They used GRADE to assess the certainty of evidence. And I like the way that they actually came together as a group and decided what's the minimal important difference. And so they said that it was 12 per 1,000 improvement for MI and 10 per 1,000 for stroke. So that's about a 1% absolute improvement that would be needed to determine a minimal important difference. So what are the results of their search? They found 14 trials assessing azetamibe and PCSK9 inhibitors, over 80,000 patients using statins. If you add azetamibe to statins, you'll reduce your risk of MI with a relative risk of 0.87, so about a 13% relative reduction. You reduce your stroke by 0.18, so relative risk of 0.82, does not reduce all-cause mortality or cardiovascular mortality. Adding PCSK9 inhibitors to statins, a little bit better, reducing MI relative risk 0.81, reducing stroke relative risk 0.74, again, did not reduce all-cause or cardiovascular mortality. If you look at adults with the very highest cardiovascular risk, so over 20% calculated, adding a PCSK9 inhibitor will reduce MI by 16 per thousand and stroke 21 per thousand over five years, moderate to high certainty. So that's like 1.6, Adding azetamibe will reduce stroke 14 per thousand and MI 11 per thousand over five years. This is moderate certainty, just borderline for minimally important clinical difference. And then adding azetamibe to PCSK9 inhibitor and statin may also reduce stroke, but that does not reach the MID. High cardiovascular risk, 15 to 20% absolute risk, very small benefit approaching the minimal important difference. And then moderate and low cardiovascular groups, little or no benefit for MI and stroke. And they found similar findings in the patients that were statin intolerant. I have lots of thoughts, Ken, but tell me your thoughts first. One of the things that I found, I mean, the whole issue about network meta-analyses, I don't really need to get into the limitations of network meta-analysis because you're not directly comparing things. And when you've got an uber thin margin of what's considered minimally minimally based on a consensus, right? So you have a consensus of people saying this is the minimum, and then you do a network meta-analysis, and then you skate along that minimum. Uh, Not very impressive for the dollar amount that people are going to have to put out. And then the second thing is, what about the harms? I don't like it when I have to go through and search supplementary outcomes and figures to discuss the potential harm of a therapy. How can I properly assess a therapy if I'm only considering one side of the coin. So that just got under my skin. 
Yeah, there's no mention of which of the randomized control trials are industry funded. I presume it's most of them. So you're already skating <laughs> along there. And I still not convinced that this proves the benefit of checking an LDL in patients at high risk who are already on a statin or high dose statin rather than a fire and forget strategy. They have an accompanying rapid recommendation. We've done a few of these from the BMJ and they're really, really well done. Very useful visual summary that states for high and very high risk patients already on high dose statins or intolerant to statins, another agent should be added. That's their recommendation, but it's a weak recommendation. Another weak recommendation, the preferred second agent is azetamibe. So this is obviously a shared decision considering there's no mortality benefit. We don't even know if you have an MI or a stroke, do we know is that clinical? Is it mild? Could it be based on just imaging and lab values and not patient-oriented outcomes? I have long been a holdout on azetamibe, and this actually shows me the role that azetamibe could be used in shared decision-making. So someone on high-dose statin, very high risk. It might change my thinking around those very high-risk patients. It just reminds me of a Canadian song. It don't oppress me much. <laughs> Shania Twain. And yes, right. I can't sing. Anytime you can bring in a Canadian singer to the discussion. Well, you, you started this. I was just trying to bookend this uh, abstract because you started with Gord Guyette. So I wanted to bookend <laughs> it with another famous Canadian who is not in the Medical Hall of Fame. Bottom line. Azetamibe may play a role in very high-risk patients already on high-dose statins. Paper three. Abstract number three, atrial fibrillation detection using ambulatory smartwatches. I picked this one because, you know, if you're looking for a gift idea for this holiday season, perhaps a smartwatch for your spouse, your relative, or other friend at risk for AFib. Right. But the objective of this study was to assess atrial fibrillation detection performance of a smartwatch and the feasibility of ambulatory monitoring for atrial fibrillation. So what the researchers did was they had 200 patients consecutively selected who were coming in to get a 24-hour ambulatory Holter monitor already. And then they said, hey, here's a smartwatch. Let's give it to you and see if it can pick up the AFib as well as what we're trying to do with this Holter monitor. So the cohort was about one-third female. The mean age was 66 years. And listen to this, Steve. Two-thirds already had a pre-Holter diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or a flutter. Yeah. Now, half of them, so that was 112 out of the 200 patients, did get atrial fibrillation detected while they were wearing their Holter monitor for 24 hours. And they used some digital filters to remove the noise and interference that was being picked up by the watch. And here are the metrics. The sensitivity and specificity were 97 and 89, respectively. They has a positive predictive value and negative predictive value of 92% and 97%. And then when you looked at likelihood ratios, it was 8.6 positive and 0.03 negative. And the final one is the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve was 0.9. So that's a lot of numbers. I just like to talk about this thing. This was a Garmin-funded study that had similar results to the Apple Heart-funded study. So a Garmin watch or an Apple smartwatch. 
The cohort was recruited from Taiwan, and it had this really high pretest probability population of almost two-thirds already having a diagnosis of AF or A flutter. And this was confirmed with more than half of the cohort getting that detected while they were wearing the Holter monitor. And so these results can look really impressive looking at sensitivity and specificity and the predictive values and the likelihood ratios. You go, wow, this looks really good in this high prevalence group. But if you extrapolate that to a low risk population, you can be misled. So it means you can have confidence in a negative smartwatch result, but should be skeptical of a positive smartwatch result. A positive finding using a smartwatch in a low prevalence population has an increased likelihood of being a false positive. And these individuals that, you know, wearing a smartwatch and some kind of alarm goes off, those individuals should definitely have their arrhythmia confirmed with the gold standard Holter monitor. Yeah, this is interesting. This is at least the second paper we've done. Like you said, we did the Apple one. And I think for me, the usefulness of this is that while I don't know for sure if a patient comes in and says, my watch says I have a funny rhythm, that it's probably real enough that it's worth investigating. Now, what this doesn't say at all, and we're going to talk about in the next paper too, is, is this advantageous? Does it help the patient? Do they have a better outcome? Or are they more likely to be harmed because they're, you know, get a bunch of tests, they're stressed because they feel like they might be sick. They now have been diagnosed with pre-atrial fibrillation. <laughs> but I do think that if a patient comes in and says, my watch, especially if they're higher risk or older, my watch says I have an arrhythmia, you probably have to investigate that then. Yeah, it's not that you don't pay attention to it, but it's, I think you need to interpret it within the clinical scenario. You're yeah. never going to act on just one data point. And like you said, oh, okay, that's interesting. Let's look into this a little further and ask around that and maybe get some uh, confirmatory studies done. It's at least a thing that makes you go, hmm, right? You can't totally ignore it. Things that make you go, hmm. These aren't jokes. These are thoughts. These are things that make you say. Bottom line. Smartwatches are getting smarter and smarter, but they're not ready for prime time to diagnose your atrial fibrillation. Paper four. Abstract number four, screening for atrial fibrillation in older adults at primary care visits, the vital AF randomized controlled trial in circulation March 2022. Again, this is our theme here. Today's the atrial fibrillation and heart theme. It's kind of appealing to want to screen for atrial fibrillation. It has a lot of the characteristics of screening tests that you might want to use. Atrial fibrillation is common. It can lead to bad outcomes like stroke. And there is something we can do to prevent the stroke, anticoagulation. The downside is that the treatment is also potentially harmful, like you can get bleeding from anticoagulation. And so the harms benefits of anticoagulation, depending on the risk, can be pretty evenly balanced. So these authors wanted to test a point of care screening in a primary care office. So this is different from the watch that we just talked about and the Apple screening study that we talked about before. They randomized 16 primary care clinics to atrial fibrillation screening using a handheld single-lead ECG during vital sign assessments or usual care. I cannot imagine going up to our medical assistants and being like, I'm sorry you already have 23 different screens that you have to do at the intake. 
Now you also have to do use this handheld single lead EKG screening. All the patients were over 65. So that's really important because the risk of atrial fibrillation is much higher in patients over 65 than under 65. And then they just gave the screening results to the primary care doctor at the encounter. The results, they screened almost 31,000 patients, half of them screened, half of them control. And amazingly, about 1.5 to 1.7 were diagnosed in both groups, no difference. And about 70% of those who screened positive were placed on anticoagulation in both groups. And Ken, this is the first screening study I can remember that shows that people who are screened have no higher prevalence of disease than those who were not screened. And so this doesn't tell us anything about the benefits and harms of screening with longer term continuous lead or by the smartwatches. We talked on PCMA about a wearable patch for two weeks, which did increase the rate of detection, but there's no poem outcomes here determining whether this is beneficial or not. So I think we're definitely still at a hard I, I don't know, possibly a D about whether we should be screening for atrial fibrillation or not. So there's a couple of things I wanted to point out with this abstract that you picked. One was about financial conflicts of interest. I don't know if you noticed, but the funder of the trial was the maker of another smartwatch or smart device called a Fitbit. And so they funded the trial and there was some financial conflicts of interest. If you read through the author's list connected to Fitbits, I I don't know the extent of those uh, things. Maybe they just got a free Fitbit. I don't know, but there were some financial conflicts of interest there. The other sort of nerdy or methodological thing I wanted to touch upon was this is a clustered randomized trial. So it's not a randomized control trial like we normally think. People aren't individually randomized to get this screening or not this screening. This was a clustered randomized control trials. So some of the clinics did it where the other ones didn't. And so There are a few reasons why researchers select this cluster design as opposed to traditional randomization approach. They have some advantages. You can mitigate against contamination between the intervention and control group because they're not happening in the same physical space, right? And you don't have to worry about participants sharing information. Hey, do you know I got hooked up and got a lead there done at the uh, screening desk? You know, so, and the, the authors mentioned this, right? That this is one of the limitations. It can also help recruit participants into the trial, right? Because the whole site's doing it. It's less expensive if only one of the clusters has to apply this potentially expensive intervention at the time. And it's really good for public health interventions rather than individual interventions. But there's also some disadvantages to clustered randomized trials, and they can be more difficult to design, to analyze properly. It raises some unique ethical challenges that don't happen in individual randomized control trials, and it can be more susceptible to some types of biases. From a statistical standpoint, they are less efficient than an individual randomized control trial with the same number of observations. Can you think of a reason why people were diagnosed no differently when they got a little readout saying your patient may have AFib? Is that because Lots of the patients are symptomatic, so they told their doctor anyway, or maybe because it's such a brief, maybe that's the difference. But now I'm talking myself through this. When you monitor it for two weeks, like the other study that we talked about, you would catch it even if it just came up once in a two-week period. 
Well, this is just a quick snapshot. I think you're onto something there. I think that's probably why the pickup rate was no statistical difference between the two groups. Yeah. And if anyone had symptoms, then they would probably tell their doctor anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, there's going to be a lot of noise in that signal. Oh, I'm getting palpitations or short of breath or those types of things that may indicate they were having AFib, right? And if they rose to the level of being symptomatic. Bottom line. A quick snapshot screening test in primary care offices does not increase the diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. Paper five. All right, we're leaving cardiology and heading on to pregnancy. So abstract number five, recommendations on instrument-based screening for depression during pregnancy and the postpartum period. And this was in the Canadian Medical Association Journal 2022. And I just want to give a shout out to Dr. Eddie Lang, who's from Calgary, Alberta, who was the lead author on this publication. So here we go. These are the recommendations from the Canadian Task Force on Preventative Health Care regarding using a screening instrument for identifying depression during pregnancy and one year postpartum. Now, they use the diagnostic criteria for major depression, and that requires at least five symptoms. I'm not going to go through those. That's not the purpose of this. But up to 9% of patients are diagnosed with major depression during pregnancy and up to one year after giving birth. There are serious health concerns with depression during pregnancy and in the postpartum period. And there are also treatments available to help these patients suffering from major depression. So the Canadian task force recommendation was, quote, the task force recommends against instrument-based depression screening using a questionnaire with a cutoff to distinguish screen positive and screen negative administered to all individuals during pregnancy and the postpartum period up to one year after childbirth. This was a conditional recommendation based on very low certainty evidence. So it is unfortunate that there is a lack of high-quality evidence to inform our practice in this area, but I don't think we should be surprised because overall there's a lack of high-quality evidence to inform our practices in most areas. Now, the recommendation not to screen is consistent with the United Kingdom's National Screening Committee, but it is in contrast to the United States Task Force. The U.S. Task Force recommends screening for depression in the general population, and included in the general population are pregnant women and postpartum women. Now, the different positions on whether to recommend screening suggest to me that the evidence base is just too weak for any consensus. A limitation of the Canadian process that I saw when I was reading through this, and this would be one of the recommendations I would give Eddie, is I didn't see that it included a layperson on the publication to represent patients' values and preferences. And I really think that that's something we should be doing if we're going to be creating guidelines and using the evidence and the experts. We're missing that third pillar of evidence-based medicine. Bring the patient to the table and to the discussion and ask what they would value and prefer. It's really interesting. Lots of things that we talk about the USPSTF recommends is, is an eye, insufficient evidence. And these authors are more taking a position like, if you're going to screen something, if I'm going to tell you to do something in an otherwise you know, healthy person, and there's not enough evidence, then you shouldn't do it yet. And that's like a D, mm -hmm. don't do. But So they're saying don't do it, but with very low quality evidence. 
that the USPSTF would say is an I. So it's kind of a different like philosophical approach. Like don't start doing things to people unless you have good evidence that it works. Yeah. And I, and I think the time to accept a claim is when we have sufficient evidence. And again, we're screening because we're talking about screening. We're not talking about like this gets back to the AFib person before when you were saying, you know, if they're symptomatic, if they're symptomatic and presentation, that's not screening anymore either. And so if a person comes in during their pregnancy or postpartum period and starts expressing themselves right up front that they're struggling, that their mood's down, they're not enjoying life, they're having uh, disturbing thoughts, any of those things, you're not screening that individual anymore for, hmm, I wonder if they're depressed. You're actually digging into it. Yeah. And just another point is there are caveats on the USPSTF recommendation that you should only do the screening test if you have systems in place to assure accurate diagnosis, effective treatment, and appropriate follow-up. So, you know, obviously we need better behavioral and mental health care access in primary care. That's incredibly important. And until you have that, screening is is not going to be helpful. Again, totally help people that are asking for help, but be very cautious about screening when you don't have good treatments in place. Bottom line. There is a lack of evidence to support screening all pregnant patients and postpartum patients with a standardized instrument for depression, but you can still ask how patients are doing as part of your usual care. Paper six. Abstract number six, mifepristone and misoprostol for undesired pregnancy of unknown location. Obstetrics and gynecology, May 2022. Just a little background. We know that a gestational sac should appear at about four and a half to five weeks gestational age on an ultrasound. That's days since the first day of the last menstrual period. And you're going to correlate that with HCG levels when you see that gestational sac. And the earlier a pregnant patient presents to consider abortion, the more likely the location of the pregnancy cannot be determined because there's that very early cutoff. And so there's a concern that initiating medication abortion in a pregnancy of unknown location could delay the diagnosis of ectopic pregnancy, which could lead to maternal morbidity. Actually, we don't know the optimal management of an undesired pregnancy of unknown location early on. There are some protocols that allow immediate medication abortion for undesired pregnancy of unknown location. When you combine that with serial HCG follow-up to exclude an ectopic pregnancy, this is called same-day start. And same-day start is contrasted with delay for diagnosis, which means you wait to perform the medication abortion until you can actually confirm the intrauterine pregnancy. So these authors from Planned Parenthood performed a retrospective cohort study, so observational, not randomized, to compare immediate initiation with delayed initiation of medication abortion among patients with an undesired pregnancy, unknown location. They excluded people that had major ectopic risk factors like previous tubal surgery, previous ectopic pregnancy, and an IUD in place. They went through their electronic medical records for patients who requested a medication abortion with an LMP of 42 days or less and pregnancy of unknown location, so that's no gestational sac. And they looked at primary safety outcomes, time to diagnosis of pregnancy, 
and also some secondary efficacy outcomes. So the results of their retrospective cohort study, they had uh, over 5,000 medication abortion visits less than 42 days LMP, and 452 of those patients had pregnancy of unknown location, so only 8%. In over 90% of the patients, you could see a gestational sac. Three of those patients that had unknown location underwent immediate uterine aspiration. 55 had a same-day start, and most 394 had the delay for diagnosis. There were 8% of the patients that were treated for ectopic pregnancy, including four that were ruptured, and all of those were in the delay for diagnosis group. Unsurprisingly, same-day start had a shorter time to diagnosis, so you could figure out more quickly where the location was. There was no difference in emergency department visits or loss to follow-up. The same-day start had a shorter time to complete abortion, so that would be the big benefit here, median five days versus 19 days. However, the rate of successful medication abortion was lower, and the rate of ongoing pregnancy was higher among patients in the same-day start group. And they think this might be because with extremely early gestations, progesterone levels are not high enough for mifepristone to work. And maybe that the medication could actually hasten a self-resolving ectopic pregnancy. 18% of the patients in the delay for diagnosis group eventually were diagnosed with early pregnancy loss. So an abortion might not even be required. So that would be a reason to wait for the definitive location diagnosis. So the authors conclude that Immediate initiation of medication abortion is associated with more rapid exclusion of ectopic and pregnancy termination, but lower abortion efficacy. And probably we're not going to be able to do an RCT on this, given the low rate of pregnancy of undetermined location at 42 days or less. Bottom line. Same day start with mifepristone and misoprostol for undesired early pregnancy may be an option for pregnancy of undetermined location with close follow-up. Paper seven. Abstract number seven. The serotonin theory of depression, a systematic umbrella review of evidence, molecular psychiatry 2022. All right, Steve, are you ready to have your mind blown? (laughs) Yes. With my serotonin levels going higher or lower or possibly not correlating at all. Yes, the serotonin hypothesis of depression is well established in the house of medicine. And the objective of this umbrella review was to synthesize whether depression is associated with lower serotonin concentrations or activity. And this association between serotonin and depression was identified way back in the 1960s and then rose to popularity in the 1990s when there was this big push to use selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for depression. So this umbrella systematic review followed the PRISMA guidelines and did an extensive search of the literature, including multiple electronic databases and going out to the gray literature. It resulted in only 17 studies with most being low quality. That's a surprise, right? That there's only 17 studies out there after decades of research, and most of them were low quality. There was no consistent evidence of an association between serotonin and depression. 
and the results did not support the hypothesis that depression is caused by low serotonin activity or concentration. And this lack of high-quality evidence to support a common practice in medicine is not new or unique to the psychiatry literature. Yeah, it's interesting because medications are going to be used a lot more by doctors and patients if there can be a story of why they might work. So we probably wouldn't have just said, oh, let's take fluoxetine, which was the first SSRI in the market. Let's start patients on fluoxetine who are depressed, unless there was this story about serotonin, which I imagine was you know, marketed by industry that knew that they were having these medicines that were coming. And just fluoxetine, the data on whether it works, we could talk about it. And, and it probably does work some for depression or anxiety. But whether or not that's related to this story about serotonin should really be irrelevant. But because the medicine works or the medicine doesn't work, kind of like statins and LDL, either the statin works or it doesn't work. And whether we say it's because of the LDL, it doesn't really matter. And so I really like that you picked this paper because it does show that when we're telling a story, especially about not patient-oriented outcomes, we need to be really careful about where that story is coming from. And I think that it can also stigmatize people to some degree by saying, you've got a chemical imbalance of in your brain. There's something wrong with your brain. Uh, you know, and then it gets back to that whole idea of that we need to normalize your brain chemistry or we need to normalize your a certain number that we measure. I think the human body is much more complicated than that. And we've got years to go before we understand all of its nuances and intricacies. Yeah, that's a great point, Ken, because basically, if you accept the serotonin hypothesis, it dictates that the treatment for depression is a medicine. But if you don't accept the serotonin hypothesis, it opens up a whole other kinds of treatments for depression, you know, counseling or exercise or mindfulness or whatever else might help. But the minute that we accepted the serotonin hypothesis, it basically became like, now we're going to prescribe medicines for this. Yeah, and I agree with that sort of evaluation. And there are other, other reasonable options to treat people with depression that don't involve pharmacotherapeutics. Bottom line. We need to acknowledge the lack of convincing evidence for the serotonin hypothesis of depression. Paper 8. Abstract number 8. Visco supplementation for osteoarthritis of the knee, a systematic review and meta-analysis. This is from Annals of Internal Medicine in August. And Ken, I promise that I will wait a long time before I pick another Visco supplementation paper because I think it probably confirms what we already know and have already talked about. But when I looked through our old abstracts, I actually didn't find any for a long time. So, But this is probably the definitive paper on this topic, so that's good. You probably have a lot of patients who receive intraarticular hyaluronic acid, which is also known as Visco supplementation for symptomatic knee osteoarthritis. So these authors conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis to assess the benefits and risks of this intervention. They searched a bunch of databases. They didn't limit it to the English language. They found 89 trials, 12,000 plus adults, and 68 of them only had sham control. Most of the studies were industry-funded. 71 trials showed a moderate reduction in pain with visco supplementation. 
but there was substantial between-trial heterogeneity. Unpublished trials, unsurprising. Good job for them for finding the unpublished trials. Unpublished trials showed basically an effect size of nothing. And then the largest trials, 18 of them, with blinded outcome assessment, 5,000 patients, showed a clinically irrelevant effect size. So the better the study, the less likely it was to show that visco supplementation was helpful. And these authors anticipated your question, Ken, because they looked for the adverse events, which only 14 of the trials had adverse events, but it did show an increase serious adverse events. Although the trial quality was low, safety data was often not reported. So these authors say in patients with neoosteoarthritis, visco supplementation is associated with a small and clinically irrelevant benefit and increased risk for serious adverse events. And even the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery recommends against visco supplementation. Yeah, I like this systematic review and I think that they interpreted the data appropriately with their conclusions. You know, you have these randomized control trials that find this little tiny difference of like, you know, two millimeters on a visual analog scale from zero to a hundred. When we know that 13 millimeters is usually considered clinically significant, there were similar findings with regards to function, uh, not just pain, and they were at higher risk of serious adverse events compared to placebo. One of my concerns, though, is like half the trials had high risk or some concern about randomization in the bias assessment. Now, just to remind people, these are RCTs. The first letter is R. I'm not very confident in the findings when half the trials in a systematic review have high risk or concern about the letter R in RCTs. So I really want to promote that we need, we need to do research better. We need to have better methodology so we don't end up getting these systematic reviews saying, meh, you know, we really don't have much evidence for this treatment when they're conducting randomized control trials and there's big concerns about the randomization process. So Steve, you know, I've got a bad knee. We went hiking up in Arizona together. I will not be lining up for lubrication of my joint or getting platelet-rich plasma injection or getting interarticular steroid shots anytime soon. Yeah, this is a poster child for bad industry-funded studies early on that make something seem like it might work a little bit better that doesn't hold up when better research is done. Bottom line. Visco supplementation for symptomatic knee osteoarthritis is not recommended. Paper nine. Abstract number nine, effect of intramuscular versus interarticular glucocorticoid injection on pain among adults with knee osteoarthritis. The KISS randomized clinical trial in JAMA Open 2022. And this is a segue from the previous one. That's why my comments did bring up the idea of steroid injections. The objective of this trial was to see if an IM or an intramuscular steroid shot is non-inferior to an intraarticular steroid shot in reducing pain for adults like me with osteoarthritis of the knee. So this was a multi-center, open-label, randomized clinical, non-inferiority trial 
including patients with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis, performed in primary care practices in the Netherlands. The participants were randomized to getting IM or IA, knee steroid injections, and the primary outcome was a pain score at four weeks using the knee injury and osteoarthritis outcome score. And it goes from zero to 100, but zero actually indicates extreme pain. So the non-inferiority margin was set at minus seven, and they conducted a per-protocol analysis appropriately to analyze the data. They recruited 145 individuals, two-thirds were women, and the mean age was 67. And the result was a mean difference of minus 3.4. So remember, I told you they set the margin at minus 7. Now, they found the point estimate was minus 3.4, but there's a confidence interval around that point estimate. And it went down to minus 10. And so that exceeds the minus 7. And non-inferiority could not be concluded. So no statistical difference was found among all the secondary outcomes. So the authors in this study concluded that intramuscular injections of steroids was less effective than interarticular injections of steroids for adult patients with osteoarthritis of the knee. Now, they did set that margin at 7, while the clinically important difference for this particular scale is known to be 9, but that wouldn't change their conclusion because the lower end of the 95% confidence interval was just over 10. However, I would have had a different conclusion. It was not a blinded trial, and we know that the more invasive a procedure is, the more powerful the placebo effect can be. And having a needle put in your joint is more invasive to me than just giving someone a shot in the arm. And this is what could have led to the results. I think it would have been much better of a study design to have everyone get an intraarticular injection and everyone get an intramuscular injection and sometimes they would be placebo and sometimes they would be the active and nobody would know what they were getting but everybody would get two shots one in the arm and one in the knee and this would have minimized the placebo effect and given us a higher fidelity of the results but I also would have added a third group that only got placebo so it was a saline shot in the arm and a saline shot in the knee And this could have added to the 2015 Cochrane Systematic Review on this topic, which concluded that the evidence for steroid injections is unclear. Yeah, I don't see, I've not heard of giving steroid injections not in the knee for knee osteoarthritis, and I don't think this is going to make me run out and start (laughs) doing that practice. (laughs) Bottom line. Intramuscular steroid injections may be inferior to interarticular injections in adult patients with osteoarthritis of the knee, but we do not know if interarticular steroid injections are better than placebo. Paper 10. Abstract number 10, alert, guideline review. Guideline review. This is the AHA ACC guideline for the management of heart failure published in a Journal of American College of Cardiology, May 2022. And Ken, we were called out by Heidi and Cardi because they wanted to know what we thought about this guideline. Oh, yes, I have some thoughts. <laughs> Good. Hopefully we will not disappoint with our rants. But honestly, how do you summarize over a 100-page guideline in five minutes? And so we picked it and we want to talk about it because It probably will be an important discussion topic for years, 
So it's good to be aware of it. And honestly, just like the Herculean tasks that these guideline creators took on, a comprehensive literature search, they aligned it with other ACCHA guidelines that might kind of like overlap or bump against it. And it updates the 2013 guideline and the 2017 focused update. Their mission, should they choose to have accepted it, was intended to provide patient-centric recommendations for clinicians to prevent, diagnose, and manage patients with heart failure. So that's a pretty noble cause. I tried to count these recommendations, Ken. I think there are 152, but it took me a long time. And so I may have lost focus somewhere in there. Um, But let's say there's around 152 recommendations. I I just want to point out that that metric, that means that there is more than one recommendation per page because it was 138 pages. And I don't know if you exceed one recommendation per page that, that that sometimes tips you over the edge or something. Right. So first, how about if you and I share some critical appraisal pieces and then maybe talk about the the highlights or the lowlights of the actual recommendations. So first, conflict of interest. This is actually improving for the ACCA AHA. They only have eight out of the 26 panel members who have conflicts of interest with the pharmaceutical industry. It should be zero, but eight is better than, you know, 26. The composition of the group, they had your lay and patient representatives that you like, Ken, two of them. They also had cardiologists, heart failure specialists, internists, interventionalists, an electrophysiologist, a surgeon, a pharmacist, and an advanced nurse practitioner. I would have loved to see some more primary care doctors in there. They did intersect the guideline with a systematic review, and they did a good job of listing all the strengths of recommendation and the level of evidence, though there were lots of strong recommendations based on weaker evidence. And obviously, 152 recommendations is way too many, but they actually do a good job articulating these using tables and flowcharts and colors. And I like how they add value statements where they try to incorporate cost effectiveness whenever they could. Do you want me to just finish the highlights and lowlights and then you can comment or do you want to talk about some critical appraisal here? Yeah, I'll jump in with some critical appraisal and then, and then you can uh, carry on with the highlights and lowlights. Sound good? Yep. Okay, so the first thing is it relates back to the 138 pages. Talk about all the noise and lack of signal. I mean, this is a big, bloated document, and it's really hard to pick out. You know, you mentioned the, what is it, the BMJ snapshots that we get? Right. Can't you give me something digestible? Something small, yummy. Oh, I can, you know, like like a two-bite brownie. Oh, those are so satisfying, right? Like just 138 pages over a hundred recommendations. Why have all these recommendations? Because you know that most of them aren't going to be level A recommendations. Why don't you just stick to the really high quality stuff and not do all this low quality recommendations? You did mention about financial conflicts of interest, and I agree, they are getting better, but they still encourage us to get with the guidelines. So I'll still encourage the AHA to get with the guidelines on guideline writing put out by the Institute of Medicine in 2011 saying that the chair or co-chair shouldn't have any financial conflicts of interest. And I saw that the vice chair had a lot of financial conflicts of interest with industry. Now, they do talk about how they managed it, and the writing committee members were required to recuse themselves from voting on sections where they had specific relationships. That's on the honor system. And I've found that 
you know, physicians maybe, and just generally the population in, in general, but physicians, we, and I'm going to include myself in there, we don't have a lot of insight into our own biases. We think, oh, I'm not biased on this topic, but oh, my colleague is. So I'm skeptical about how effective the honor system is in recusing yourself from, from voting on certain aspects when you have conflicts of interest. So that's all I'll say right now. All right. Well, some highlights or lowlights in some cases. So the first thing is they've now defined new, they're calling them stages of heart failure, stage A, B, C, and D. And in actually stage A and B, you don't actually have heart failure. Stage A is at risk for heart failure. And are you ready? Drum roll, please, Ken. Stage B is pre-heart failure. So we are now entering the era of pre-heart failure. Stage C is symptomatic and stage D is advanced. Scary times. Yes. Another big important part of this is the goal-directed medical therapy now includes four classes of medicines, and Cardi and Heidi talked about this a little bit. One. The first class is ACE, ARB, or in combo with a neprilysin inhibitor, an ARNI, like Secubitril, Valsartan. They say this is a 1A, and I do not believe there's strong enough evidence to say that an ARNI should be recommended over an ACE or an ARB. I think that's still based on limited industry-funded studies. They do say that an ACE or an ARB alone is okay when an ARNI is not, quote, feasible, unquote. So I think this is my biggest evidence beef with this guideline is since 2017, with conflict of interest, they have upgraded this Secubitril Valsartan to be better than an ACE or an ARB. Two. Second is beta blockers. That's 1A evidence. Three. Third, mineral corticoid receptor antagonists like spironolactone. That's a 1A. Four. And then another change, SGLT2 inhibitors is a 1A recommendation irrespective of diabetes. Now your four medicines in your goal-directed medical therapy ACE, ARB, or ARNI is one, beta blocker two, spironolactone three, and SGLT2 inhibitors four. The next section is the HEF-PEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and much lower evidence, but they basically say the same medicine should be used for HEF-PEF, and this is based on 2A or 2B evidence, SGLT2 inhibitors, spironolactone, ARNIs, and ARBs. Again, weaker evidence. We talked specifically on PCMA about how Secubertil Valsartan does not have patient-oriented outcomes in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And they do give that a 2B recommendation, but they still recommend it. And then the last thing I'll say about the specific recommendations is that they, they feel that evidence of increased filling pressures is important for the diagnosis of heart failure if the LVEF, the ejection fraction, is greater than 40%, like measuring BNP or diastolic filling. And this is what they're calling pre-heart failure. So before you have symptoms, but you start to have signs on either echo or blood tests showing that you might be at risk of heart failure. Wow, you did it. 138 pages summarized in a few minutes. I think we're going to have to do some spaced repetition on this. Maybe there'll be a secondary publication that comes out like a snapshot or a review that we can offer the listeners some spaced repetition to highlight 
some of the key points again. Bottom line. The new congestive heart failure guideline is a bit of a mixed bag. You probably need to know what people are talking about when they say the four medicines of goal-directed medical therapy. All right, there you go. Ten papers, skeptically and critically appraised by your favorite host. Okay, we're the only host of PCMA. <laughs> but your favorite host of PCMA by definition as well. And we look forward to coming back next month for the December 2022, the last one of the year. We'll talk to you soon, everybody. I think I can sum this all up. Summary. And we're back. Summary time. But before we start summarizing PCMA and the rest of the show, we just wanted to give you a little heads up as to why we actually do the summary. Now, PCMA is worth listening to. You need to go through, listen to Steve and Ken, hash it out and discuss all the different parts of the papers that they talk about and also go through the different studies and the evidence and the statistical tools that they use. But for some reason, if one month you just don't have enough time or you need to get the quick fix to start with, and then you know you'll go back later on to listen to the pieces in more detail, we do this summary. It's just to give you a little highlight, sort of the bottom line of each of the papers. And if you did listen to the whole PCMA section as well, this is a great spaced repetition. It's really going to help consolidate what you learned when listening to Ken and Steve. So I guess that having been said, why don't we launch into paper number one? PCMA, Article 1. So this was Ken's paper, and it was the association between the intensity of low-density lipoprotein cholesterol reduction with statin-based therapies and secondary stroke prevention, a meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials from JAMA Neurology 2022. This meta-analysis of a whole whack of randomized controlled trials showed that intense LDL-lowering strategies lowered a patient's risk of secondary stroke by just over 1%. There were methodological issues with this meta-analysis, which really detract from the findings and likely underreported the harms, so this paper didn't really contribute much to the debate, in our opinion. Paper 2 continues on a lipid theme. The title of this one is PCSK9 Inhibitors and Ezetimibe with or without statin therapy for cardiovascular risk reduction. A systematic review and network meta-analysis in my very favorite journal, BMJ. And I have to say, I agree 100% with Steve's analysis of this one. This is the first time that research leaves me thinking there is a role for ezetimibe in cardiovascular risk reduction. You know, it's always appeared to be the medication that might make the numbers look better, but does not have any patient-oriented outcomes of note. So I'll no longer be able to give side eyes to cardiology when they prescribe ezetimibe to my high-risk patients and I'll probably actually start prescribing it on my own. PCSK9 inhibitors, on the other hand, well, that's another story, and I will be casting shade on them for a while yet, I think. Paper number three, atrial fibrillation detection using ambulatory smartwatch photoplesmithography and validation with simultaneous Holter recording from the American Heart Journal in 2022. It certainly sounds impressive when you hear that a smartwatch is 97% sensitive and 89% specific for picking up atrial fib, but thanks to Ken really looking into the numbers and the details of this study, because it actually showed that while smartwatches did a good job in the study, it turns out that two-thirds of the patient were already known to have atrial fib. Talk about a high-prevalence population to start with. So perhaps we need a study looking at a broader patient cohort before we can get really excited about these numbers. 
paper for our second AFib-related paper of the month, and this is called Screening for Atrial Fibrillations in Older Adults at Primary Care Visits, the Vital AF Randomized Control Trial in Circulation in March of 2022. So screening, as we all know, is a huge part of what we do in family medicine. And we really want to screen for diseases that, if we find them, we can do something about. And AFib seems like a slam dunk here because if we find it, we can help reduce patients' stroke risk. But this paper suggests that finding it might not be as easy as we'd like to think, at least not in the office, and at least not in the study where they screen patients with a single-lead EKG. Surprisingly, that single-lead ECG was no better at detecting AFib than basically not looking for it at all. And this is one of the things that makes me go, hmm, and makes me think that I would like to see a study one day looking at how good we are at incidentally picking up AFib. I don't know about you, Vanessa, but I've been surprised by how many times I check a blood pressure, and as I'm doing that, I hear that regularly irregular heart rate, that classic AFib finding. That is the only way I have diagnosed atrial fibrillation in the office. And I'm not kidding. Like, I haven't got enough digits to count the number of times I have picked it up doing that. And it's one of the reasons that all these automated blood pressure machines drive me crazy, because by taking away the manual ones, we're losing that opportunity to perhaps palpate the patient's pulse and feel that particular change in rhythm. So, yeah, I agree that doing a screening ECG makes zero sense if a patient has no symptoms. You bring up a good point. Why do I need an ECG if we can detect something with our fingertips on their radial artery or with a stethoscope or an ultrasound while we're checking blood pressure or listening to their heart? Like, this feels needlessly complicated. Paper 5. Recommendation on Instrument-Based Screening for Depression During Pregnancy and the Postpartum Period, the CMAJ 2022. This Canadian guideline recommends against using an instrument for depression screening in pregnancy and the postpartum period. At first pass, this might seem really odd because we know that this is a population that is at high risk for depression, and so surely we should be on the lookout for it. But here, the devil is in the details. The authors say don't screen for depression using a tool in this population. You can and should still care about your patient's mental health because you are their doctor, so you can still ask them about their mental health. One extra little note on this study. I did actually like that they included that the postpartum period is up to one year. So many studies talk about the postpartum period being six weeks, and anyone who's had a kid or taking care of patients who've had kids or even known a kid knows full well that six weeks into the process is just the beginning of the ride. Things can get a lot hairier after the first six weeks. So kudos to this team for highlighting that point. But please don't take this to mean that you shouldn't ask your patients about their mental health. Paper 6, Mifepristone and Mesoprostol for Undesired Pregnancy of Unknown Location in Obstetrics and Gynecology, May 2022. So this is an interesting article that looks at the options for medical termination of early pregnancy when you don't know for sure if it's an intrauterine pregnancy or perhaps a pregnancy that's somewhere else. You know, I'd really encourage you to get into the weeds of the paper if you want to know more details about the two approaches that the paper outlines. And if you're wondering, like I have at some points in my career, how the heck to find these pregnancies of unknown location, jump on over to December 2019, where Ben Shepard did a great piece on just this topic. Paper 7, The Serotonin Theory of Depression, A Systematic Umbrella Review of the Evidence, Molecular Psychiatry in 2022. I know that a lot of what we do in medicine isn't based on high-quality evidence, but I'm embarrassed to say that it literally never occurred to me that there was a debate about the evidence behind the serotonin theory of depression. 
But it turns out that psychiatry is just like the rest of the house of medicine, where we don't always have high-quality evidence for some of our most common therapies. Now, this could be seen as depressing, or if you flip it on its head, you can see it as permission to expand your mind and clinical practice so as to include other potential treatments for depression. It doesn't say that you should not be treating patients with depression. Humbling stuff and a good reminder for all of us to always stay skeptical and look at that original evidence. I just want to want to jump in here, Vanessa, to add that I know Stephen Ken mentioned psychotherapy and uh, exercise as treatment options for depression, which they certainly are. But I just want to add that caveat that we know that medications are superior to those lifestyle modifications for severe depression. But I just really don't want people getting the message that you can tell your severe patients to go exercise, severely depressed patients, and that will fix them. Yeah, I think any of us who are seeing these patients in clinical practice will understand those patients where, okay, maybe the evidence isn't there to jump as quickly onto medications, but in some cases, a large cohort of our patient populations, medications have been extremely beneficial and life-saving. So we don't want to minimize the um, beneficial effect that they can have. Paper 8, Visco Supplementation for Knee Osteoarthritis, Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis in BMJ. There's a recurring theme in PCMA that I'm sure those of you who have been listening for a while have picked up on, and it's Ken's hunt for a fix to his knee arthritis, and he is coming up short. Oh, he's yet to find anything to help. And this paper that Steve picked and reviewed is not particularly helpful because it shows that Visco Supplementation really does not work for knee osteoarthritis. So this is that hyaluronic acid stuff that came out maybe 15-ish years ago. While it may be associated with the very small and clinically irrelevant benefits, according to the study, there is an increased risk for severe adverse events. So please don't use this. Paper 9, Effective Intramuscular versus Intraarticular Glucocorticoid Injection on Pain Among Adults with Knee Osteoarthritis. The KISS randomized clinical trial. JAMA Network Open 2022. Wouldn't it be grand if a steroid shot, either into the muscle of your arm or into the joint of the knee, could fix pain from knee OA? If only, but this is not the case. Shockingly, I know. The IM injection doesn't seem to be better than intraarticular injection, and the intraarticular injection doesn't seem to be better than placebo. So not exactly great support for injections. Now, on a side note, I found the statistics in this paper extremely hard to follow, so thank goodness Ken and Steve helped us out with that. And also one question to the study authors, why would you have a pain scale that rates pain from 0 to 100, where 0 is the worst pain imaginable? Are you trying to frustrate people for fun? Are you trying to mess with their heads? Are you trying to make us cry? Why? I say, why do this? Why? (laughs) Anyway, sorry about that. Paper 10, the 2022 AHA-ACC-HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. This is a clinical practice guideline published in circulation in May of 2022. And Vanessa, when we asked Stephen Ken to review this, I had no idea we were asking them to look at a 158-page document. Did you know it was that long? I felt a little bad about that. (laughs) Oh my, oh my. Last month, you and I talked about quadruple therapy for heart failure and how tricky it is to implement that clinically, unless you and your patients have the proclivity for hypotension and just adore that state. So it was nice to hear Stephen Ken dissect the guidelines on which that recommendation is based. And Steve said it well. He called them out, saying that the top-level evidence that they cite is there for Secubitril and Valsartan really isn't all that robust, which makes me feel justified and being hesitant with quadruple therapy. 
Okay, so moving on to the rest of the show, we'll give a little summary of some of the other pieces. It's Reviews and Perspectives with Dr. Hobart Lee. Hobie and I got together, and of all the things, we talked about dress codes. So it was a bit of a fashion showdown, and we debated all things related to what doctors should and should not wear. And we would love to hear your thoughts on this. We'd love to know how your dress and attire has changed during the pandemic. And a reminder to please support our Kickstarter for our fancy dress-up scrub line, patent pending. <laughs> it comes with rubber boots and a parka. <laughs> Everything you need, all in scrub format. The Generalist. And then on The Generalist, Penny Wilson joined us to talk about a case where the baby came out face first. Yes, usually we like to see the occiput coming, but this was the face. And so she was able to give me a little bit of a rundown on what to do and how best to prepare in these situations and how to help with the delivery. Hepatitis A with Chris Drum. Next up, Chris Drum joined us for a piece. And in this, he regales us with one of the dangers of grabbing a quick bite for lunch. Finding out that your favorite restaurant is the source of a hepatitis A outbreak. Oh my heavens. He then goes on to share some of the basics about hep A and what to do when our patients are exposed. And the take-home point here is that what you do depends on if your patients are over the hill or if they're not. So if they're under the age of 40, they just need a hep A vaccine. And if they're over 40, they need to be vaccinated and to receive immunoglobulin therapy if they are part of a hepatitis A exposure. Adolescent contraception. And then we had Penny Wilson back to actually talk to us again, but this time it was about adolescent contraception. And good news, while so much of adolescence seems mysterious to those of us who have passed past that life stage, contraception for the age group is actually fairly straightforward. All forms of reversible contraception are on the table, with a preference for the longer-acting ones like IUDs. Healthcare and Disabilities Next up was a conversation between Cody Unser and myself. And Cody is a disability rights activist and a wheelchair user based in New Mexico. And I have to tell you, this conversation really humbled me. It opened my eyes to just how difficult it can be for those with disabilities to access healthcare, how many barriers there are. And it also made me realize how I have contributed, however unwittingly, to these difficulties for my patients. I'll give you an example. Like We all need to have exam tables that everyone can safely get on and safely stay on. We all need to have fully accessible clinics. And we all need to learn both the management of the condition that created our patient's disability and to know the downstream effects of their disabilities. But we cannot, in primary care, we can't forget the routine stuff we do as well. We can't forget about prevention and basic health care that are so often overlooked. And the last thing we need to remember is to check our assumptions at the door. We can't let our biased imaginations of what their life with a disability might be like prevent us from finding out about what their actual life and needs are. Brian Hayes. Pharmacology Round. With Brian Hayes. Brian Hayes. And Gita Pensa. <laughs> Get out of here. And on urgent care, we're talking about some cautionary tales in the world of antibiotics, specifically quinolones and TMP-SMX. So have a listen. Rural Medicine Talks. And then over on Rural Medicine, I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Mati, who goes through the case of a patient who came in with severe facial burns. Really interesting, some particular challenges unique to the rural setting, so definitely worth a listen. 
And that's it. That wraps up November 2022. Any closing remarks in your defense, Heidi James? In my defense, I would say closing remarks in defense of the privilege and the honor of being general practitioners who get to practice medicine and interact with patients in so many different aspects of their care. It's a great job. We're so thankful to do it. And we're so thankful that you do it as well. And thank you to everybody for all of your hard work out there. We know that times can be tough in the general practitioner world as well as the rest of the House of Medicine. So thank you. And please keep doing what you do. Because what you do matters. 